because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome, everyone, to Cows in the Field. This is a movie podcast where we talk about the philosophy, cultural themes, and other stuff <laughs> regarding popular films. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we are joined to talk about The Conversation by my very good and old friend, Robert Pierce. Hello. Tell you something about Harry Call. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. Did you see him? The man with the hearing aid. He's following us all around. Three people were murdered. Uh, had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think. I think will be used to stand it. hurt these two young people. <laughs> no way responsible. I, I'm not responsible. How'd you get this phone number? We prepare a full dossier and everyone. It's terrific. <laughs> the bugger got fucked, eh? Do you have secrets, Harry? I know you do. Tell me about yourself. Your secrets. I don't have any secrets. Don't get involved in this, Mr. Cole. Mistakes are dangerous. Come on, Harry. Show and tell. How do you do it? Why are you asking me all these questions? So this movie is uh, remarkable in the in the fall in at least the following sense. So Francis Ford Coppola makes The Godfather, and then he makes uh, The Conversation, and then in the same year releases Godfather Two. And uh, I just I don't know if that's ever happened in film history where somebody has made first of all three amazing movies in the span of whatever two years, but also been up head-to-head -head against themselves for Best Director at the Academy Awards. Has that ever happened? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, just, I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of any Not that I know. That. I mean, Spielberg's kind of famous for doing for doing two in a, in a row, but yeah. it would be like a Jurassic Park Schindler's List, like only mm. like a popcorn yeah. and, and an Oscar, mm. you know? So I right. don't know of anybody else who's been up against themselves. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Uh, so we'll be talking about this movie today. Um, but before we get into that, um, I guess... You know, Robert has been mentioned on this podcast mm -hmm. uh, multiple <laughs> episodes, and we figured, Infamous. yeah, we figured we should invoked. we should bring him on because uh, yeah. the spirit of Robert has been invoked. And <laughs> so, Robert, so I mean, we met in Santa Rosa. At, we were talking right. earlier, seventeen years ago. Yeah, seventeen, eighteen, whatever it was. Uh, you know, so I lived in the Bay for uh, you know just shy of twenty years. And I lived in Santa Rosa for a couple of years and uh, toward the tail end of that, 
uh, before I moved to San Francisco, I worked at Healdsburg High School and was the manager of a tutorial lab, which uh, you also worked at. Yeah. While I was there, I, you know, I went to school and I tried to work a couple jobs and, you know, sort of figure out what, what direction my life was going to go in at that point. And uh, it, it was, you know, I was socially awkward, like in my early 20s. I didn't know anybody. You know, I, I had moved here from, or I'd moved there from Oregon. I didn't know any, I didn't know anybody. And you were, you were literally the one friend I made <laughs> the whole time I lived there. I, and, you know, shortly after I stopped, uh, we, we both stopped working at the high school. I moved to San Francisco. Yeah. And that was kind of all she wrote. Speaking of San Francisco, so let's get into the movie. So, um, right. I'll just, here's a quick sort of synopsis of not the whole plot, but just kind of the setup of the plot. So we have a guy played by Gene Hackman. His name is Harry Call, and he is a professional eavesdropper. So he bugs people and, you know, he's hired by certain clients. He bugs people and then, you know, gives his clients the recording that they asked for. Um, he's also a very secretive guy. Something we're going to talk a lot about is how he... Um, does he himself knowing that he could be easily bugged or, or listened to at any time demands and desires a kind of anonymity in his life um, and is quite paranoid about being uh, followed or bugged. Um, and he professes ostensibly to not care about the subjects. He's like, it's just a job. I just record. And that's that. Um, but he comes over the course of the movie to worry that the people he has been bugging in in at the beginning of the movie, their lives might be in danger as a result of his bugging. And then, you know, the, the, the rest of the movie plays out and it kind of is this, it feels to me like the height in a way of the uh, 1970s uh, sort of paranoia genre that that cropped up, which which has a lot of you know great movies in it. Of course, uh, uh, all the President's Men, um, Three Days of the Condor, um, what Parallax View, um, yeah, Parallax View, right? So yeah, and I but it really to me this one I don't know kind of stands for me stands out. It's one of the it's it's incredibly rewatchable and also is a movie that um, uh, feels despite the technology obviously being obsolete mostly um, feels so modern it feels like a movie that just in its tone and sensibility could have been made today and it holds up quite well at least that's that's my take why don't we start off with some historical context first uh oh man uh <laughs> buckle <laughs> up <laughs> do, do, do you want to start on that or you want me to throw a few things no out? throw some stuff our way all right so you know this this movie was obviously uh it was made i think in what 73 and then released in 74 yeah i think that's right like that. yeah you know, it was made between the two Godfather films. So Francis Ford Coppola, you know, he wanted to make this movie before the Godfather films, uh, but the studios wouldn't give him the money because they were like, eh, this plot sounds kind of weird and dodgy. Like, it sounds too artsy, mm. um, which, <laughs> you know, kind of gets to, again, that era of Hollywood. So it was made in, in, in sort of what's now called the New Hollywood era, which is essentially, you know, after the studio system kind of started to collapse due to changes in demographics. Uh, once the baby boomers started getting older and, you know, the cultural changes we saw in the 60s started, uh, began to happen, uh, the, the movie studios wanted to, you know, they recognized that that was, that was a thing and they wanted yeah. to reflect that. Yeah. So uh, they started being more experimental in the films that they would put out and they, they would throw like ridiculous amounts of money at films like 
uh, geez, uh, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde or Planet of the Apes. Um, and a lot of these movies went way over budget, uh, but they ended up being huge hits or mm. very critically acclaimed films at the time. Uh, so, you know, you, you also had a breakdown of historic structures as far as like narrative filmmaking was concerned. Uh, you had the rise of the sort of the anti-heroes, uh, the sort of dirty Harry's and again, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, you know, pale writer, um, you had films like the graduate, you, you had more risque subject matter because this is again, post code, right, uh, right? The Hollywood code was done at that point. And so, uh, you had you know, the nature of filmmaking and, and narrative filmmaking in particular was changing pretty dramatically. You know, the Hollywood code in particular was really problematic because once the McCarthy era was over and once the 60s kind of started to roll in and you started to see widespread cultural change, uh, young people in particular were like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to see The Sound of Music 30,000 times. Um, I mean, it, it was a great movie and it made How a lot of they? money. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I'm a fan of musicals just like anybody else. But uh, so... That, you know, but that, that sort of concept of like, oh, you could have The Graduate. Yeah. You could have, you know, movies that had more uh, complex subject matter uh, where, you know, the, it, the sort of more Hitchcockian kind of approach to filmmaking where you sort of mess with people a little bit. And, you know, that, people found that interesting at you the know, time. I wonder, too, if, it's, if it has anything to do with um, the Vietnam War is kind of raging in the background. And there's a kind of, I always think of the boomer generation as, as, in the 70s, starting to shift into a kind of the idealism of the 60s, giving way to a kind of cynicism of the 70s. Like, oh, definitely. They're like, yeah, you know, like all this protesting and stuff. What is it accomplished? Like uh, the war goes on. It, it's dragging on. We, we, we haven't really um, changed anything. Um, and all of our all of our great, you know, rock and roll heroes have, are dying. Yeah, um, you know, the, you have the 27 Club where Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and all these people died. Yeah. And, you know, Martin Luther King is shot. Uh, you know, Malcolm X, all, all these people were killed. And then Nixon is reelected. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is uh, culturally like you have to you have to put yourself in the position of somebody who was, I don't know, 25 at the time. And all of these things are happening within like a two year or three year period. That, yeah. that has to be kind of, uh, I don't want to say traumatizing, but I mean, it probably was. Yeah, no, demoralizing. I, I demoralizing. And I can yeah, imagine demoralizing. it make you cynical. Like if Trump was exactly. reelected, right? Uh, like I could, yeah. this amount of cynicism and detachment and unhappiness just among young people um, or among every, a lot of people, but especially among young people would be, would be immense. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you you know you had the you had the kind of breakdown of historic structures in, in the studio system. Uh, you also had more character driven films mm. uh, where you had really distinct characters that were intriguing and interesting, and you had you know the rise of method acting, mm -hmm. which sort of reflected that. Uh, you also had you know a greater emphasis on cinematography and complexity of plot structure. Uh, prior to that era, you, you, you most movies were were story based. And then they became more and more like character and mood based. Mm -hmm. uh, so you would get movies like The Godfather is a great example where like half the movie is shot in the dark. Mm -hmm. uh, and that never would. I mean, that's that's like sort of your, you know, your classic sort of Sam Spade film. Right. But those movies were not very common, uh, mostly because of uh, technical reasons, mm -hmm. because the, prior to that era, the cameras and the lenses that they used were really not good to shoot in dark situations. So you had like. Most movies were shot on these bright uh, sound stages right. where you had like 20K lights shining on people making them sweat all the time. And, you know, you, the, the idea of like a Stanley Kubrick film just wouldn't happen mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. technically it wasn't possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is, I mean, so, so take us through, so the conversation is a situation, you know, that, that arises in this environment. It's an environment of, you know, cynicism of changing Hollywood norms, new demands from the audience, uh, a hunger for different stories. I mean, this is definitely a movie which is 100% character based and very, very little story driven, right? I right. mean, we, as we're going to get into, it's actually not at all clear what happens in this movie. Like, I think we, all three <laughs> of us will have had a different interpretation of what happens in this movie. And that's great. Um, yeah. So, but not, but it, in a way, I think as a result, it, it almost makes, it, de de it, 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 we don't need that to, to, to latch on to the, to the, the greatness of the movie. You don't need that the story, you're not like, oh man, I need this to get resolved or else I can't figure out like if this was a good movie or not. You're just like, yeah, no, this is a great movie, partly because it's such a fascinating character study of this guy, Harry Call, um, who exactly. embodies some of the kind of cynicism and paranoia. Um, and I think, you know, interestingly, this idea of guilt is going to play a big role in Harry's life and his choices. Oh, yeah. And you might think that that is also collectively a kind there's a kind of guilt or a kind of regret on the behalf of the generation of well we couldn't stop vietnam and we couldn't stop nixon and you know we're like living with the consequences of this and wondering whether we made the right choices or whether there was anything we could have done whether it was just like the machine would have continued on regardless so i wonder yeah in that sense if harry call in a weird way embodies a lot of the forces that were happening at the time. Absolutely, yeah, the moral dilemma of, you know, you live in a society and it, it, the idea is that in, in a free and democratic society, supposedly, uh, the people have some level of control over, you know, which direction culture and government go in. Right. And after that era went through, uh, and, you know, people lived through it, they, it, there was a very clear understanding that it's gonna do whatever it wants. Yeah. And you as an individual are probably not ter in a terribly good position or you know, or in a strong position to make um sustained widespread yeah. cultural change. Yeah. You know, it's it's one thing to make change, but then have it sustain itself through time is is another challenge as right. yeah. we are even witnessing today. I mean, think about this too. The, the movie was being made while Watergate was happening. I know that's incredible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was it was released months before Nixon resigned. Uh, and that, you know, it, that's just completely insane to think about that they were making a film about the, the very topic yeah. that was actually going on in the government at the time, uh, with totally unrelated. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know I, I looked into that and I was like, yeah. And Coppola is like, no, I just thought it was a cool story. Like it's, he had yeah. come up with the story, right. As you said, he wanted to do before Godfather. Yeah. So he yeah, had the, the idea 60s. long before any of this mm -hmm. Nixon stuff. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So. There's the context in which the film was made, right? Which is it's sort of, you know, which with regard to the craft of the film and sort of what was going on in Hollywood, you started to have, again, the, the influence of cinema verite, uh, Italian film, uh, where you would have just some dude with a 60 millimeter camera following somebody down a sidewalk mm. and like, there's no extras. It's, it's literally real people walking down the sidewalk past the actor. And you would see their genuine reactions to this, like some dude walking down the sidewalk. You know that 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 concept again was very new and also very inspiring to a lot of the filmmakers that came up through that era. So so there's that. You also had 
in a lot of major cities, uh, this was very common where you sort of had this transition from the city being uh, this sort of bohemian port town mm -hmm. with like military influences uh, to like a corporate center mm -hmm. where you had, you know, finance and bank. I mean, that stuff was always there, but you in the 70s um, and people, I don't know if, how many listeners have been to San Francisco, but you go to the financial district downtown and it's it's full of skyscrapers. Yep. Right. And people think of San Francisco as, you know, like little Victorian homes all in a row painted pretty colors. It's like, no, <laughs> I mean, full that's, house houses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's one very distinct part of the city, mm. and most of the city is pretty low density, right? But downtown, it's it's a it's a corporate center. I mean, that you know, you've got buildings that are 30, 40 stories tall. Uh, so that, but that was all brand new at the time. Mm. And you can see in the movie, uh, there's several shots uh, where Harry Call is walking through Embarcadero One, and you see all these skyscrapers, you know, the, the skeletons of the steel frames going up in the background. There's construction all, going on constantly. Yeah, Laura noticed movie. that, like in the background, con oh, like man. almost every shot in the background, there's construction. Yep. Yeah, there's, and that's the, the thing. The, th the moment where he realizes that his landlady is reading his mail. There's just like a wrecking <laughs> ball behind him, like taking out a building yeah. in the background. It's oh man, yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, there's there's a, a funny story I'll tell you about that. But, okay, so but <laughs> I that, can't that's wait. a good point. No, it's great. So one thing to mention really quick is you had this, you had a concept uh, called redlining, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Mm -hmm. So in San Francisco, you had a guy named Justin Herman. He was the head of the uh, San Francisco Planning Department, and he did this thing where his they, they would take a map of like a predominantly African-American neighborhood, like the Fillmore District, for instance, and they would draw a red line around where you would have majority black uh, renters or owners. And they would say, okay, um, like if you say you're a bank and you, uh, and you had people coming to you for loans to buy houses, um, they would say, nobody within that zone gets to buy their house. And mm -hmm. all of these properties are going to be eminent. We're going to use eminent domain. We're going to tear down all these buildings and we're going to build like clean, affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is that, you know, the city had this grand, supposedly from an exterior view, it looked like the city was doing this really nice thing. They're tearing down all these, you know, hundred year old Victorian homes that are lived in by 30 people in a room. Uh, and, you know, supposedly building new clean housing. Well, the problem is, is that they would generally build far lower density housing. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a neighborhood with 50,000 people living in it. And then all of a sudden there's only enough housing for 10,000 people. Right. Where are all these people going to go? So, and we'll get to this in a second, mm -hmm. but the building that they have Harry Call living in w is in that district. And that's what you see going I on see. literally in the background of the film is them tearing down all these old buildings that were predominantly lived in by African-Americans. Is that the, did you call it the Fillmore district? The Fillmore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that area is t more toward Hayes Valley, but uh, the Fillmore kind of bleeds into Hayes Valley and that's right where that building is. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so, that, so that's, you know, a, a minor side note to, as far as the film is concerned, but you can literally see this going on in the movie. That's wild. <laughs> that's wild. Definitely what you're saying though, Robert, you know, what's going on in the city? Well, the city right. is pushing out uh, the diversity. It's pushing right. out the color, yeah. uh, you know, that comes from the, uh, the artists and the uh, hippies and the, the people who, you know, from the 60s were generating all that interesting culture that we, you know, venerate now uh, right. in replacing them with what, like, you know, low density housing for rich people, rich white people, and also, uh, you know, corporate buildings. 
exactly. So it is mirroring exactly that general that cultural shift that's happening between the 60s and the 70s. You know, I wonder too, like how Harry Call fits into this, not just thematically, but like as a person. So, like Harry Call, is he a guy who is he like an ex hippie who's like kind of like now working for the man in a way, or is he was he always a square? Like he's he's like the ultimate narc, right? Pretty much, you know, yeah. like. Yeah, but he thinks, but he he feels himself. He's an artist, you know, because he makes right. his own. He makes his own equipment. He doesn't like. He goes to these sort of conventions as like I'm above all this. Like I work for myself. I follow my own code. I make my own equipment. So I don't think he would think he's working for the man. But yeah. anything that he does, it's always for the man. He, who's hiring? Who's him? hiring like, somebody to survey somebody? Sur- sur- yeah, surveil somebody else. Like yeah. 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 It's, yeah. Yeah. He's preeminent in his field, as they say in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's, uh, but th- that's so interesting because I wonder in a way if like if audience, I mean, I, I actually, what, let me just put it to you guys. Do you identify with Harry Call as a protagonist? Do you like when you see him, <laughs> no. do you go like, no, I mean, do you do, do you <laughs> empathize with him or are you just like, no, nah, this guy's like, if, like, uh, he's like a. You know what I was saying before, like, is he he's, he's just a square? He's a paranoid, uh, you know, he's a, he's actually really doing a harm to a lot of people. Um, right. Or do you or do you sort of empathize with his situation? Um, I mean, I feel for him because I, I think mostly because he's so lonely, but he, he also lonely. like really wants intimacy and he's a terrified of the, you know, what what intimacy necessitates, which is. A letting down of your guard and and sharing something of yourself and like he wants it he dreams about it he's scared of it he's lonely he's like he's a tortured little dude i feel bad for him but i don't really empathize with him. i don't see any of myself in him because <laughs> <laughs> that's what i wonder and and i, I want to hear what you think about this too robert because i wondered if like audiences in 74 what they would have thought of Harry Call. Would they like, have, Harry's I mean, my guy. Yeah, would they have been if like, it, I like this guy? Or would they have been like, fuck this guy? Like, he's, he's everything arc. we were fighting against. I mean, to a certain degree, it's a little bit of both because, uh, I mean, on, obviously on one degree, as you're saying, he's, he's this guy's like an extreme square. And, you know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's this like hyper-religious dude yeah. who keeps to himself and is super socially awkward. Yeah. Um, Reprimands you know, people I, I pers- for saying Chris, for Christ's sake. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like, you're a blaspheme. Uh, you know, I, I can I can personally un- both understand and empathize t- with that to a certain degree, having grown up Catholic. Uh, but uh, you know, having uh, now being a, um, <laughs> a a post-Catholic individual. What the hell are they talking about, for Christ's sake? Stanley, please, I'm trying to get this done. All right, don't get excited. Well, I'm getting fed up. About what? About you're asking me questions all day long. Jesus. Don't say that. Well, for Christ's sake, Stan, don't say that again, please. Don't use that word in vain. It bothers me. What's the matter, Harry? The, I think at the time, I mean, obviously, the character of Harry Call uh, eventually is rebelling against his own um, kind of ethos mm. uh, because he starts to empathize with the people that he's recorded uh, in, in, this, in the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's, He's throughout the whole film. He's grappling with his own notion of what is right, yep. and um, and sort of weighing that against his own sense of pride, um, which you know, again, those are those are very sort of religious themes, um, which I I personally find fascinating just from an individual standpoint. I think that's exactly right. No, I think you're right that that he he is this complex character, and so 
there are different facets to him um, and he's pulled in these different directions. Sure. And part of the excite, part of what's interesting about the movie is to sort of see how he tries to reconcile these different parts of his, I don't know, of his persona. Um, but yeah, again, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a form of anti-hero in a way. Yeah. Like he, he, you have the super square guy yeah. that in the end like tries to do the right thing mm -hmm. and doesn't Yeah, really it's sort of, <laughs> what happens? I don't know, but yeah. yeah. You wanted to talk about the look, like how they right. how they stylized. Oh him. man, yeah. So, <laughs> what were you what were you thinking yes. on that? So, in this film, you had just people like walking around on the street, and Harry. They intentionally made his character look kind of like schlubby, and you know he's wearing a suit that's like way out of fashion for the early seventies, uh, and he's wearing um, and you know he has these like big thick rimmed glasses yeah. and you know, this like sort of simpy mustache and you know <laughs> he, he he did not look like a, a like a confident uh, strong individual yeah um, in it but one of the most distinct things that he, he literally wears everywhere in this movie is this weird plastic raincoat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like he literally even wears it in bed with his sort of pseudo girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, I know he does. <laughs> I forgot true. that he does <laughs> it's that. True. Yeah. Oh, I love that coat. Yeah. Like they're, they're making out in bed and he's got this fucking raincoat on. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing, man? Well, I'll I mean, tell you, you what know, he's doing. It's damp in San Francisco. What the movie did to get right. And I was like, yeah, every time I go, it's just humid and my hair is frizzly. Like, that's they, fair. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, you know, living in San Francisco for almost 20 years, like you, you, you do learn to wear layers. It's you gotta. Important. Yeah. So I, I like yeah. that. The movie is true to San Francisco in that way. But yes, no, he is a total dork with that <laughs> I mean, raincoat. Yeah. One thing about the raincoat that I thought was kind of interesting is that it's so it's simultaneously like an extra layer of protection. So in right. that sense, it's like what Harry Call wants is to cover himself up, but mm -hmm. it's also transparent. It's clear. It's clear. Right. So you see right through it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it yeah. just, it, it, it sort of serves these dual purposes of right. like trying to cover, but also expose. Um, yeah. That's one thing that I was really interested in about Harry is as how, as a character, he's a bundle of contradictions um, mm -hmm. in that, at least in the sense of what, he, there's this major clash between uh, what he professes and what and who he is or how he in fact acts so to, just to give a couple examples of this so like uh so as we've said he's a he's a professional eavesdropper but the thing that he fears most is the thing he does best so there's this weird tension because he knows how to do it best and thus he knows how he's most vulnerable he's most afraid of the very thing he does for a living namely invading other people's privacy um he also multiple times throughout the movie says i don't care about the people i don't even listen to the conversation i just want a fat recording i just right. want the fat tape um yeah. but of course he becomes deeply uh intrigued and then sympathetic with and then obsessed, you know, obsessed by. by the couple that he records at the beginning of the film um he also as it comes out is dealing with an immense amount of guilt about this act that this prior recording that he did, which led, I mean, who knows how right. causally responsible he was, but which ultimately led to the death of three people in New York and, and yeah. presumably and it's a pretty gnarly death. Yeah, it, no, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and we get, you know, and, and, and led him to have to move away. Exactly. We, we, we implied that he needed to leave New York to basically run away from this. So not right. only did he, you know, he says, Oh, I don't really care, but not only does we see him care, but he also clearly cares about those people. 
Um, And then another thing is that he also says, maybe as a way of deflecting against the, uh, the, you know, um, when Morant's sort of a, kind of throws it at him like hey you know you those guys died because of you and he he deflects and he says well i just get, i just turn in the tapes what people do with them is out yeah, that's none of my business none of my business i'm not responsible right. for what they do with them um yeah. but at the same time so he, he he tries to say like i'm not responsible but on the other hand he of course feels immensely responsible he's deeply afraid that actually he is deeply responsible for 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 those people's deaths Later in the week, Sunday maybe. Sunday definitely. We had a much better track here if you'd paid more attention to the recording, less attention to what they were talking about. I can't see why a couple of questions about what the hell's going on can get you so out of joint. Because I can't sit here and explain the personal problems of my clients. Jack Tar Hotel. Three o'clock, room 773. I heard if you fill me in a little bit once in a while, did you ever think of that? It has nothing to do with me and even less to do with you. It's curiosity. Did you ever hear of that? It's just goddamn human nature. Listen, if there's one surefire rule that I have learned in this business is that I don't know anything about human nature. I don't know anything about curiosity. I don't, that's not part of what I do. What I, this is my business. It's an it's an immense amount of guilt, and which is again a very interesting theme to have being a a, a, a very intense Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, exactly, yeah, and I, I think it's also <laughs> yeah, and so he's so he feels, and I think this comes to the Catholic thing as well, where there's another contradiction, which is that he desires to be anonymous uh, and not you know reveal any of his private details, and yet. Throughout the movie, he over and over again, uh, we see him confessing uh, to people. So he confesses to the um, mm. to the priest in the in the confessional. He in his dream um, to Anne, the woman he's bugging, yeah. he he confesses not, you know, well, he says, like, I, I'm worried that something I did, you know, might put you in danger. But he also confesses a bunch of things about his life, about his right. like. Uh, he confesses to the the uh, the showgirl assistant mm-hmm. from uh, the Moran's assistant that he loves uh, Amy exactly. exactly, and he confesses to her that he yeah that he well he he wonders to her like is this with this you know I don't know what, yeah. exactly what he says but you know is this like a good thing or whatever I'm I, you know I'm in love with this woman but I kind of keep right. her locked yeah. in a. <laughs> Locked in an apartment yeah. in the basement. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And then I just which spy on her every now and again. Yes, he yeah, does. Which he pays for. Yeah. It's super weird. It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> I think in his twisted mind, like that justifies him like spying on her. He's like, oh, I, I like, you know, I provide for her and therefore I can just sneak around on the stairs and just like. And watch her. And watch yeah. her. Yeah. That, that could be a justification. And, I mean, yeah. it, and this is, a, this is a thing too, is that a lot of the things you're talking about sort of get to the central theme of. of Again, getting back to relatability, we yeah. all, you know, in 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 the capitalist Western world, we all have to sometimes do things that we're not super down with just mm-hmm. to make a buck. Yep. And this is a guy who's obviously chosen to do some pretty dodgy shit uh, for the sake of making a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. And uh, you know, and that's something that I think everybody has to grapple with that's to a certain degree. Yeah, that's interesting. So you you might see him as just a as. Uh, reflective of the compromises we all have to make and 
he, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that he has had to make these compromises, which have affected his life in this way and made him feel all this guilt and stuff. But it's sort of like, yeah, I can sort of see that because I've had to make compromises in my life. Oh, absolutely. Too. I, I think. Absolutely. But it's one, funny, though, he takes so much joy and yeah. pride out of his work. Yeah. Like when he he does eventually get goaded into bragging a little bit about right. how he manages oh, yeah. to catch the conversation and, you know, like how many different devices he used and stuff like he loves it. And maybe he wishes that he could like use this skill of eavesdropping on people for, I don't know, a husband who wants to buy his wife the best gift ever or something like some nice reason, but mm. it's never a nice reason. Almost never. It's never a nice reason. It's never, right? So he has to know that, but there's something about him as a person who he's like, I think he is fascinated by the content, even if he denies that. Um, but he's certainly fast, but he's very pr like proud of and fascinated by the the various means, the problem solving to catch That's right. that conversation. That's totally right. I think, though, as far as relatability, here's another aspect in which he is relatable. Everyone is fascinated to some extent by other people's private lives. Totally. Like that is that's just something. The, that's why that, Instagram functions. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, if if here you might even argue that it's at the core of a lot of uh, dramatic film. Like, why do we care to watch Harry Call go through this existential crisis? Well, it's because we're in, we it's, it's as if we're watching a window into this guy's life and we're getting to see him. Uh, you know, deal with these existential issues in a way that is reflective of our issues. And so we sort of get this window into this other thing. We see, okay, wow, he's going through similar things that I have. And it's just all, it's deeply fascinating. And it's the kind of issues that if you met Harry Call in the street and you asked him, what kind of issues are you dealing with? He's not going to tell you because of privacy, exactly. right? And so yeah. maybe there is this like, just as he is fascinated by the people he's bugging, like we're fascinated by watching his story and, and totally. all that. And we want to know, just as he wants to know what's going on with Anne and the guy um, that they're bugging, we want to know. So there's this, that's what I was wondering about. Like, you know, we relate to him as a viewpoint character because he embodies the desires that we have as an audience. Mm. Even mm. though... He himself is is almost like disgusted or um, guilty, guilt ridden, and um, horrified, and uh, of all of these things that he's doing. Um, it's interesting that, of course, you know we don't feel that way because we're watching a fiction. But but you it can still feel that way, though. I mean, if you're yeah. watching something, if someone you're do something a, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, rubbernecking yeah. phenomenon, or just or like you know the Hanukkah points this out in funny games. Yeah. But we can feel like both a like a like a sort of almost compulsive need to watch and also be aware of the fact that it's not like something desirable in ourselves yeah. if you want to watch it. I agree. Yeah. It's a very human response to, you know, to just allow yourself a, a little bit of this or a little bit of that mm -hmm. or a lot, depending. Yeah. I agree. Oh, one other thing <laughs> is that, um, so the things that he tells um, in Anne in the dream, so he tells her three things. I was very sick when I was a boy. I was paralyzed in my left arm and my left leg. Uh, couldn't walk for six months. One doctor said that I'd probably never walk again. My mother, my mother used to lower me to, into uh, a hot bath. It was, it was therapy. One time the doorbell rang. She went down to answer it. I started sliding down. I could feel the water. It started coming up my chin and my nose. And uh, when I woke up, I, my body was all greasy. Holy oh, she, she put on my body. I remember being disappointed I survived. When I was five, 
for, uh, my father introduced me to a friend of his, and for no reason at all, I hit him right in the stomach with all my strength. Uh, he died a year later. Uh, they are all things apparently that come from Coppola's childhood. Really? Yeah. So I, I found that. this out That's just kind so of googling cool. around. He huh. apparently Coppola was having trouble, maybe himself, like us, getting into the character. He he didn't like the character, I guess. And so what he did was he inserted. He just he knew he needed the character to confess some stuff. So he decided to put in things from his own childhood to make it more personal to him as a director, to make him relate more to the character. And hmm. um, so those three things, I guess, are from Coppola's childhood. Fascinating. Anyway, it's a tidbit. Hmm. I did not know that. It is also interesting, though. I mean, the the idea of, and Laura and I were talking about this before, that he, the hitting the friend's father, he said, yeah. I hit him as hard as I could in the stomach. And then he died <laughs> a year later. This idea that, like, <laughs> like there's a kind of hubris to oh, yeah. thinking mm. that, as it's just a childlike hubris, to thinking that like you were the one who caused it, right? He feels guilty about this because he's worried that maybe I caused it. And it's similar to the kind of hubris that maybe, you know, it's it's simultaneously hubristic and also, you know, guilt, the source of guilt to feel like you are responsible for the people that died as the result of you bugging, right? I mean, you might just think of it like, well, I'm, I am just a bugger. Like I just record this stuff and then it's, it's, it's out of my hands in a way. And it's hubristic to think that like, you are somehow enabling, uh, I don't know, these bad things to happen. Um, so there is this kind of parallel between that event, you know, that he describes and what's happening to him right now. The very thing he worries, you know, he is, he'll have this guilty conscience forever if these people die. I think the thing about Harry Call is that his contradictions are just very, very extreme. But yeah. when we sort of teased out what those contradictions are, we saw that like they're all very human and we all have those contradictions within ourselves it's just yeah. that this character is living in that contradiction to the most extreme <laughs> um, yeah oh yeah yeah so i think that's it's it's just like an inflation of 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 conditions and experiences that we all have all the time um our own human contradictions i mean as, as somebody who you know also uh professionally you know had has slash whatever a craft mm -hmm. uh I, I can relate to that aspect of it very well yep. of course I mean, there's, there's, yeah there's kind of the the unspoken um uh, you know there's the social contract and then there's the sort of working man's contract which is even if you don't get paid very well for a given job whether it's i don't know bricklaying or uh you know building rebar cages for some construction project or who knows what or in my case photography and videography uh you you, you take pride in your work and, and you do the work because you take pride in it. It's a self-feeding cycle. And some people have to be very careful, you know, how much they actually invest in that, uh, you know, so that it feeds back properly into their own sort of uh, motivations and creative loop. In, in, in Harry Call's case, it's obvious that he takes a lot of pride in his work. Yeah. Um, that that's a, that's a central part of his like reason to get up every day is to go do this thing and do it very well because he is the best. And uh, the Moran guy, you know, he's he's obviously uh, also motivated by that. He he seems to exist, I think, to make Harry more likable because that guy is the <laughs> worst. <laughs> oh yeah, he's super slimy. He's definitely a, <laughs> yeah, no, he's definitely a foil. Um, yeah. on this on the taking pride thing, Robert. Actually, I was I should mention. Yeah. So I I told Laura when we watched it, I was like, I want you to take this as an insult because I'm going to explain. It's no, like, no, no. I was I like, I see yeah. Robert uh, in Harry Call, aspects of Robert in Harry <laughs> Call. But it's exactly that part of the character. It's that he takes yeah. so much pride in in the craft 
then I and, and that was one I thing knew that, what you meant immediately because yeah. I was like, oh, doesn't Robert do yeah. word, woodworking and things exactly. like that? Like that's what so, I that oh, was yeah. my response. Let me just give that, you yeah. one example so <laughs> that the audience can know what I'm what I'm talking about here. And and maybe you, Laura, I'm not sure if I told you this. So so Robert, um, back when we were in Santa Rosa, my parents uh got some desk from some doctor who was like, I don't know, if he he was moving or something. It was this massive desk, and they were like. All right, Justin, you just got a new desk. Like it's a, it's like a piece of shit. Like it's huge, <laughs> and it's all messed up. It's oh, got. Oh yeah, you remember this with it's, the cigarette burns, burns yeah. and shit. And and so <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I hope they paid you well enough. But they were like, you they know, did. yeah. So Robert, Robert came and and for like weeks would come over yeah. and put like seven, eight, nine <laughs> layers of lacquer and finish on yeah. this desk, and you just came over and you would like sand it down. Put a layer. Oh, yeah, on. it was this. It was it was like an eight foot long metal framed uh, walnut top office desk from like the sixties, yeah. and it, this thing probably weighed I don't even like two thousand pounds. Yeah, I don't even know how, how much it weighed. Do they still have and anything? Just? No, no. It, it's, <laughs> I, I'll tell you it's, what happened. To okay, it. okay. But, yeah, but your parents. So your parents. So I was getting into woodworking at the time professionally, yeah. and and your parents hired me to basically fix the cigarette burns on the top of this thing. Yeah, and it also needed to be refinished because it, it was just old. Yeah. Um, and I was like. I don't know how to fix this. So I, I just like, I sanded down the cigarette burns and then filled them with like putty that I made from the sawdust I got. And you know, it's amazing. A, again, amazing. I, I can, and this gets back to the Harry Call character. Like I, there was a, there's a lot of aspects of the character I could relate to personally. And yeah. one of them is absolutely the obsessive compulsive side yeah. of like, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be perfect. Yeah. No, I and mean, you, like you, Robert, you had there's no, no force in this, in the universe that can stop. Exactly. Me. You, you had no real, I mean, beside that, you didn't have any reason yeah. to make it great. You just had to make, you just had to like make it look decent. Right. But you <laughs> right. made, this was like the, this desk, by the time you were done with it, it was like the best desk in the world. It was so <laughs> smooth on the top. It looked so good. So I took that desk to Davis that the next year I took it to UC Davis and, yeah. um, and then, I only had it for one year because I moved apartments <laughs> and it was literally too big and heavy. Oh, no. oh, yeah. I couldn't move it to the next apartment that I had moved to. <laughs> Do you to. think it's still in that same yeah. apartment? It I, just never yeah, left? Yeah, maybe because I left it there. just circle around it and enjoy it for however long they're there. <laughs> I literally just left it. it. Yeah. I was like, here you go. Like, you get a free desk. And they're like, cool. I don't I don't have a desk. And and that, but <laughs> what I think is so fat. But, but, and so there's, you know, that's a sad story about the desk. But the happy story is like, Robert was like, it's a process. It's yeah. not the final product. No, you it's made not, this, it's a happy story. But but really, <laughs> yeah. in it, but it made. I don't know. I was just like that. That is Robert. You uh, you. That's just em, how I am. You embodied yeah. a way of living <laughs> that is admirable, right? It's admirable <laughs> to, to do to say I'm going to take is an intrinsic quite a statement to take an intrinsic you know value yeah. in this thing, which which you know instrumentally only has a little bit of value, but I'm going to intrinsically value it in this task that I've been given make it as best as I can. And, you know, yeah. I just think that's incredible. So praise be, we can move on. Well, but I, I just wanted to yeah. shut that Yeah, no, I know. I, that's, that is the moment I think where I started to be like a little bit on Harry Call's side. I think when we do see him compared to Bernie Morantz, because he, because, I mean, Bernie's good at what he does too, but he seems to be in it for the accolades more than anything else. Like in that story, and he's the money. like, and the, the money. money. He wants money. Totally. And, the, and, the, and he's and he's like, and the power, like he feels where Harry denies that he has power and maybe thinks he does, but denies it out loud. Like Bernie's like, no, no, no. Like we control the universe as buggers. Like he's mm. telling this story about Harry, about the murder that happened uh, maybe as a result of Harry's bugging, like joyfully. Yeah. It's and also a, like, he says he got a president like 
to president lose of, or elected or that's something. Right. Like a, yeah, that's so right. Yeah. He's I'm like, not going to say which party, but yeah, you know. right. He has this thing. He's like, <laughs> we are the masters of the universe pulling the strings. Yeah. You know, that's what he's in it oh, for. Yeah. Um, and that's not what Harry's in it for. Was there something that you wanted to note about sound editing in this movie? Because sound editing for me often like totally like passes me by. I think mm. you're much more attuned to this, Justin, than I am. And I um, I don't really pay attention. Now we've like got the surround system. So mm. where I'm paying more attention to the way that a, a movie is mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was just curious to hear what you guys thought about the the sound editing in a movie that is all about sound editing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, one, what's your take? I mean, one the the really obvious take is is how they use the um you know this sort of process of editing uh to tell the sto- to in a way tell the story uh which is reflected uh in what Coppola himself is doing with the film. So the the editing of the movie sort of reflects that is the visual editing in the movie reflects the the sound editing that 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 um Harry Call is doing. So as Harry Call almost every time he's replaying the tape, we get a cut to some shot of the characters saying the lines. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of mirroring of the visual, which is obviously being edited by Coppola and the thing that Gene Hackman is doing as right. the, as Harry Call when he's editing the thing. The other thing that is really cool about it is you see the process. So you watch, you get to watch like, and it's very easy to understand what he's doing. He's got three tapes. He shows you there's three tapes on one side. There's one tape on the other side. He's mixing the the input signals from the three tapes to the one tape. That's yeah. basically just turning the levels up and down, up and down. That's like, which one is best at a, a given time. That's all he's doing. Of course, yeah. then later he brings in some EQ or whatever to like yeah. change the frequency uh, band or whatever. But like, but the most of it is basically just like which one is better, A, B, or oh, C, yeah. and it is so. Just when you see that and nobody has to tell you, he doesn't have to point to John Cazell and be like, see what I'm doing here? You just get it. You understand that this is what's happening. It's all physical. And I love that. And it's very basic sound recording technique. You know, it's you basically have multiple tracks or multiple versions of a single thing and you create a master off of that. And that's what you use as your final quote unquote final take, you know, in, in the and this is this is where shit gets really geeky because. Uh, most of that equipment was actually owned um, by Walter Murch, uh, who was the sound editor mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. film editor for this movie. Who and Walter Murch is, uh, you know, for for anybody not familiar with sort of film geekery, is uh, he's this uh, he, he is a preeminent figure in the history of film editing, especially with regard to sound editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a lot of really experimental stuff in the late sixties, early seventies, and uh, you know, he, again, he's he's all he's a, he heavily associated with Coppola and a lot of his films. Hmm. Uh, but he also did a bunch of his own movies later on. And uh, he, he, when, like when I took sound editing, uh, when I studied cinema, uh, he was like the guy that all the teachers would point to. Hmm. <laughs> and what's interesting is that he, a lot of the techniques that he developed um, through that era are now just like standard practice in editing. Hmm. Uh, like I'll give you an example. Um, one of the cuts you can make like between two scenes. Oh, are we going to do is, J-cut? Uh, eh, somewhat. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I was. I just. I, yeah. Sorry. I just got excited. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you geek out. <laughs> no, on that. No, the no, one I was going to talk about is hot on the mic. So just sorry, calm down. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. 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 sorry so one of the things that you can do is. Uh, I mean, th- this is kind of a J cut, but it, what you can do. One of the things you can do is um, you can either insert like 
I don't want to say white noise, but sounds that are sort of ethereal mm. between shots. And you can sort of have something um, ramp up as you're about to make an edit and then mm. it ramps down afterward. Mm. Sometimes that's a J cut, some t which, you know, means that you basically have the sound from the next shot coming in to the previous shot before yeah. you even get there. So there's kind of like a, um, it, there's a lead in essentially. Yeah. And they did, and he did that a lot. He in does. This movie. Like there's, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. there's like there's a shot uh, that I loved um, where Harry Call was standing in the elevator, um, and uh, the Cindy Williams character uh, Anne is it? Anne, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, she comes into the elevator too, and he sort of like scoots to the other side of the elevator <laughs> to get to because he feels uncomfortable being around her. And then you start to hear um, this, and, and you hear the like the wind from the elevator shaft as the elevator goes down. And then you start to hear this like squealing, screeching noise, which, and then there's a cut. And then you have Harry in his shop, like rewinding the tapes. Oh, and it's oh wow. Ice. Yep. And it's like an immediate lead into that. Um, and th like that technique is is just like standard practice in pretty much any film uh, editing process. Uh, I think today. I read this somewhere, but it kind of makes sense to me. So I'm just going to put it out there, but I have no source to cite. But um, the the it seems intuitive to me that, that one of the reasons the J-cut is natural to us uh, seems to me because it reflects the idea of when you hear a noise that's out of your field of vision and then you turn your head. So you yep, hear the exactly. sound first and uh, then you go, oh, what's that? And that's like the, yep. the, visual, the visual catching up with the, mm -hmm. the sound. Yeah, you have a new field of information that suddenly you have to analyze yeah. and figure out what's going on. And that yeah. also adds immensely to the intrigue of a given situation. You know, it right. adds to kind of the depth of the film by just by doing that. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, you, you're like, what's this now? <laughs> yeah, you're constant. It's it's like, a you know, this like smorgasbord of, of things to focus on and, and to try to dissect while you're also trying to figure out what the hell's going on in the story yeah. because all of all of these elements that we're talking about there's the, you know there's a hierarchy of of what's supposed to be important and one of the greatest things that a filmmaker can do uh, like Christopher Nolan and a lot of other guys are are really good at this about adding things into the movie where you to distract the audience mm. to make them think that something is important when actually it's not very mm. important mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's again something that really came out of the the new hollywood movement was you you had a lot of filmmakers that were just kind of messing with the audience a little bit. Uh, whereas prior to that era, you didn't have a lot of that in, in filmmaking. I mean, Hitchcock is obviously famous for that, but mm. you, I mean, H Hitchcock is famous for being Hitchcock because <laughs> no one else was doing that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And then you had a lot of filmmakers that were inspired by that kind of narrative filmmaking later on. Should we, should we go into the plot, this movie? I yeah. mean, I, I think, I think if anything, the, the only thing in the plot that, there were a couple things that I think are interesting to think to focus on when it comes to the plot of this movie. One of which is um, what as we get beyond, I think, the two thirds mark of the movie, things start to unravel and the movie starts to become more impressionistic and less and maybe even more in Harry Call's subjective state of mind and less of, you know, Thing, and then we can tr we feel like we can trust him less and less, I guess, as mm -hmm. as the movie goes on, and, well, and, he, and he trusts himself less and less. Exactly, too. yeah, and that's he reflected. You know what's going on, um, and and probably the scene where this becomes most jarring is is the is the scene at the hotel, the Jack Tar mm -hmm. Hotel. Yeah, Jack Tar Hotel, which is uh, again we'll get into locations later, but hotel, it's, it was where a, is it? Yeah. Uh, well, it doesn't exist anymore. Ah. Um, mm -hmm. It 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 was. 
uh, really quick, uh, the history of the hotel. So they built, uh, there's a, a hill in San Francisco called Cathedral Hill, which is not far from where I used to live in uh, the Tender Knob. And uh, you have a lot of churches and cathedrals that were on this hill, hence the name. Um, and there's this big, huge modernist one that's there now that everybody calls the dishwasher because that's what it looks like. <laughs> anyway, so there was this hotel that was built, and I want to say in the 60s, and the exterior looked very Mondrian, uh, Mondrian-esque, mm. like lots of bright colors and distinct lines. And it was super garish for the time. Uh, and it was called the Jack Tar Hotel. Um, and it was very controversial. And later on, they like dulled down the exterior to make it more palatable to city residents. And they renamed it the Cathedral Hill Hotel. Uh, and then that went defunct, uh, I don't know, 15 something years ago. Mm. Uh, and they tore it down, I want to say, I don't know, five, six years ago to build a Sutter Health complex hmm. so now it's like a big hospital complex bummer because yeah. anyway. jack one of the one of the main selling points of the jack tar hotel is that you could get a bathroom where the toilet overflows with blood <laughs> blood yeah that's just a standard feature of, you know oh, i thought that was the deluxe basic. room you had to ask I mean, specifically for I mean, that no that's that's you get a, like a body or two in addition to that yeah it's like, like, quick, i want quick thing it uh when, when harry call pulls back the shower curtain I'm, I'll never forget this. The first time I saw that movie, I thought there was going to be like a body in there. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And yeah. Because that's the whole scene leads up to like, he pulls the curtain back and then there's yeah. supposed to be something and there's nothing there. Nothing. And, and the camera, he takes like, that little breath too. He goes, <gasps> and then does it like he's freaking out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it's, if you look at the way that the shots are, like the, the camera gets closer and closer in and then he pulls the shower curtain back and then you have, suddenly you have a, a view of a, like a wider angle view of the room and there's just nothing going yeah, on. Yeah. It's almost like a sound effect goes, wah, wah. It's completely exactly. clean. It's totally yeah. clean. So that's why I think, okay, but before that, actually, okay. So anyway, actually, let's back up. Right. I mean, I'm just trying to know. <laughs> so I mean, much. I'm just trying to think of where the hallucinations might start. And I think Laura is even going to push that they start even further back. But arguably, you could think they start. Well, they do. You could, okay. <laughs> you, okay, well, we're <laughs> going to argue. with me. We're going to argue about the plot. <laughs> but well, one place where you might think there's, you might really begin to think he's hallucinating is... Um, when the first time he goes to bug, he's in the adjacent adjoining room and he sticks the probe in the wall to hear. Mm. And what he's hearing, um, is, you know, he's hearing them talk or whatever, but the, but he's also hearing like a tape being rewound. Yeah, hearing the tape that he made. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's hearing his tape. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. so he's, so already you're like, what is he listening to? And then yeah. the second thing that hits you is like he goes out to the balcony and then the like bloody handprint on the wall. Right. And like the she's like hits the handprint and leaves the blood stain. And then he, yeah. he runs back in the room. He puts the Flintstones on the TV <laughs> and he climbs <laughs> and under the covers. Up. Yeah. Yeah. And he passes out. But like that immediately you're like, this is very weird. Like what's happening? Because because that entire scene is just so bizarre. It's very strange, like, partly because of how he's reacting. Like right. you would yeah. think that if a person bloody handprint, you'd be like, "I'm gonna go see if I can save them, or I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna call the, the cops anonymously right. and leave right. or something. Or Do something. Don't it, fall asleep. It's yeah. in a way he just like jumps into bed and like passes. I don't know if he like, went into shock. Or yeah, what the deal I think was so. To be there. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that he becomes very. He almost reverts back into a childlike state, right? And I think mm. that maybe partly why it's a cartoon on the TV yeah. is that he I hides. Got that too. He hides under the covers like a kid would, and the TV is playing, and and he know, still has his raincoat on. You gotta keep the raincoat on, man. <laughs> well, you never know when the blood is gonna come out of the toilet, right. in which that raincoat <laughs> comes in handy. 
Um, you know. But yeah, so then you, I, so that, uh, but immediately you're like, he's not reacting a way a normal adult would to this. So something yeah. weird has happened. Then he goes next door and he finds the, the it's, it's perfect. Everything is perfectly yeah. fine. And he finds the overflowing bloody toilet, which again, you're like, that's. Yeah, that alone is just like, there's so many questions. Like how, I mean, I know how toilets work. How did they just <laughs> like, how did they shove blood down the pipe? Yeah, exactly. So that when you flush it, it comes like that. That's not the way toilets work. Well, you know that, Robert, <laughs> you, you know that at the Jack Tar Hotel, the toilets are like a garburator. So you just kind of garburate so. a body oh. into the toilet. And that's why it gets Which all Which is apparently blood. what they did. Yeah. Oh. You know, there's just, yeah, there's just like a garbage grinder down there. And they just, you know, it's, oh it's just, it's a, it's got a self-cleaning mechanism. But what a, what a like psycho- curling in a ball right now. But what a psychologically, you know, visceral thing to be like, oh, this is so a depiction of- of um, like the bubbling up to the surface of all the repressed guilt and and uh, and you know and all the conflict within him and it's just like bubbling up and it's this nasty bloody mess. There's even a t toilet paper. Yeah, there's like rags and, and shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just overflowing. I mean, it's it's such an evocative image. So I, I got a question. Yeah. Uh, so he flushes the toilet. It literally overflows blood and rags all over the bathroom mm -hmm. floor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what happens after that he just like and he's leaving his fingerprints everywhere he's like touching doorknobs and like and he just leaves what yeah. like what goes what happens there i think this is more argument <laughs> that what we're seeing is not real right because again what right. what could how is he going to get out of this you know like he's gonna yeah. he's he's left his fingerprints all over this and then there's going to be blood everywhere the cops are yeah. easily going to be called um this is yeah, not that entire scene seems like some version of a hallucination yeah. to, to some degree and what's interesting about the way that coppola made it was that it's it's really everybody has their own take and it's really hard to determine what is real there like yep. what actually happened exactly you know, in the end obviously we know that like the director was killed and you know well sort of but was he okay killed? well robert so well, this okay let's get, get so here's the next here's the next piece of plot <laughs> that i think is 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 tricky so um and just to foreshadow, we're going to talk about the 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 pivotal line of the movie where mm. it, the vocal stress matters. But it turns out, hack uh, call in a final kind of run through of the tape. Here's the line: He'll kill us if he get if he gets the chance. Um, he hears it in a way which suggests to him that they are actually plotting to kill Robert Duvall, the director, and not vice versa. And then he, then what we, that we see, so, so already you might think, okay, well, he's heard it one way, the whole movie, and now he's hearing it this other way. So which way is the real way? Maybe neither. Well, but he, yeah, he initially hears it. So it sounds like they are going to, the couple is going to get killed. Exactly. So he, and he, then, yeah, later on he hears it so that, uh, it sounds like they are plotting to kill yeah, the to director. Kill. Yeah, And so, okay, so then he now kind of, he, in this kind of met flashback to the hotel, he reinterprets the things he thought he saw. So now no longer the bloody handprint is not hers, it's Robert Duvall's, right. um, the director, and um, and then he even imagines the body lying there with yeah, the, lying in the, bed, with the shower plastic. curtain yeah, yeah. over it. And um, and then what we, he what we learn is that uh, the director has died in a car accident. Harry Call goes to the building to like, I don't know, I think he goes there to confront the director or something. 
but then he sees that like the the guy actually died and and then there's like all these people there can i ask a question yeah. so he doesn't have the director doesn't have a name i didn't realize that yeah. so the so he sees he thinks anna's dead right first he thinks mm-hmm. anna's dead yes he goes to confront the director. I he sees so. that Anna's sitting in the limousine. Yeah. She's alive. Then in that very moment, he also picks up a newspaper that has a headline about a, a car crash. Yep. But it couldn't have made a reference to any name. Or does it say like a director was like, or is it just- I think it, it says executive or something An like executive. That. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And yeah. then he just draws that connection. Yeah, well then there's this, but then and there's And then this, there's this like a press conference. There's like a press, press conference, conference yeah, press or something conference happening. happening. But yeah. she's coming down the stairs for yes. that. So, that, so it's clearly, there's some sort of time has yeah. elapsed. Yeah. Yeah. between those yeah. things but that's where things everything's getting it's, very muddled it's very muddled the editing okay. weirdly the editing you might think of the movie as like um the editing now is becoming more and more like the initial cut of yes. the of the audio it's becoming more disjointed mm. and more confusing and he's yep. he's revisiting the scenes and they're becoming like chaotic and it's unclear it's hard to follow what's happening um and and so maybe this is suggestive again that his mental state is deteriorating and you might wonder to how much is it deteriorating how much can we trust what we're seeing even to the extent that maybe the director is not dead maybe like that was even a hallucination like it's actually unclear at that point um uh, yeah, i mean it's obvious that the the the, char- the character of harry call is not the most like well-balanced stable individual to begin with like yeah. he obviously has certain demons etc cetera, etc cetera. and at first it's really easy to to just sort of dismiss those as like oh he's just a weird quirky dude but then all these things happen and it's like oh wow he's like is he hallucinating here is he making this stuff up yeah like, what you know it, it starts to blur the, the line as you're saying between uh, his perception and what is actually reality i think that that is the thing where now it's totally open-ended like i'm at that point like not totally sure if you might as well just be in a Lynch film at this point. Yeah, I really do think like yeah. he, it really has, <laughs> it, you know, he's transcended narrative applauding. It is, you know, it, we, I don't really know what's going on in the movie. And then he gets this call from, just to finish it up, he gets the call from Harrison Ford saying like, we're listening to you playing a recording of him that he was just doing playing yeah. the sax. And then he looks for the bug and there's no bug to be found. So, you, you know, you just end the movie in like this state of like total uncertainty as to, did he get that call? Also, like Harrison Ford is in on it. Like, you know, like th- it's this yeah, massive- Yeah, did he set the cons- director up? Like what's his motivation? Exactly. Like it's so convoluted. And I don't, I mean, it'd be, I'm sure somebody has like a really clear way through <laughs> it. But to me, it's kind of fun to just play in that ambiguity and allow the film not to resolve itself. Allow the film oh, yeah. to just be in this state of unease mm-hmm. about what happened, much like, Harry's call's state of mind is one of unease about what, where, you know, what's going on in his life and his, you know, is he even in, in a position to evaluate whether, uh, you know, anything in front of him is real. Um, and um, if that, now that, now that we know where that's where the end of the film is, the end of the film is basically like he's been driven mad by what his paranoia, his guilt or shame about what he does, his cutting himself off from everyone else. So he has no, contacts so you know because you might think if he had a friend his friend he could rely on that friend to help him understand what's real and what's not but he doesn't have any friends um and so the film almost says like look if this is the trajectory he was on all along and now this is just the inevitable conclusion of like right shutting yourself off from the world and thinking that uh, everyone's out to get you um you just end <laughs> up in a situation where you cannot distinguish 
what's real from what's not. Um, yeah, and it's the ultimate sort of representation of paranoia. It's absolutely, and it's so it it there, it really is to me. It feels solipsistic in that he he the world mm. shrinks down to just him. It's just nothing else. It's yeah. just him and his like demons, and like he might as well just be in a padded cell because it's unclear what um, whether he's going to be able to ever like enter you know a society again. Um, <laughs> At the very least, he's going to have to answer to the building owner uh, the <laughs> destruction in his apartment. I thought about that, I too. Mean, I was like, shit. that landlady is going to be, she what? gave him that nice wine for his birthday, and now this is how I he know. repays her? <laughs> I mean, I hope nobody's living below him, because holy shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I wondered about that alarm, too. Um, but yeah. <laughs> like, that's annoying. Every time he goes yeah. in the door. Wow. <laughs> I was like, if I was yeah. his neighbor, I'd be pissed. But. Yeah. yeah, I love this movie. There's so much stuff in it that's it's so dense. It feels like there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking about when he's ripping up the wallpaper, and you see a really quick glimpse of like an airplane wallpaper. Yeah, it's oh, like kids wallpaper. Yeah, yeah, it's like a nursery yeah. or a kid's room, and it's just like mm-hmm. layers. It's so of- right, like it's just like a reminder of like the density of this city and yep. how like yep. you strive for complete isolation, but you're living like in a space that other people have occupied and loved in and like had lives in. And there's just like all yeah. these like, it's like ghosts. A, yeah, totally. They're you're living mm-hmm. with ghosts. You're in a community, whether like no matter how hard you try to stay away from it. But I just love that little glimpse of a paper of an airplane that evokes so much <laughs> just a really in a half a second. Yeah. You live in a place like San Francisco or in New York or wherever yep. where you, there's generations and generations of of like culture and richness that came before you. And, you know, that's to me, that stuff is that's what endears a place like that yeah. to me. And that's honestly why I lived in San Francisco for so long. I'll add one more. Can I add one more thing? On yeah. The and then point? I have another yeah. thing to say, too. On, on the, the, wait, on the <laughs> same point? Um, something similar. I would just go ahead, Jess. I'll, no, no, uh, no, you go, go. Well, I was just going to say another thing that I really loved about this movie um, that sort of connected there. The conversation doesn't just talk about like, you know, uh, we're together, we're lovers, we're, he would kill us if we had the chance. Like they talk about other things, Christmas gifts, but then they also have this moment (laughs) where they look at a, at a man, um, who's experiencing homelessness. And she says like, that's terrible. And I feel like that's one of the clips actually gets played like the most, Mm because you never hear it in its entirety, but we keep going back to that, her, her. And she's, she says it's terrible because like, I, whenever I see somebody like this, I just think he's somebody's baby boy, somebody's baby boy. boy. And for her, like what's so sad about that is not like what he's, you know, the hunger that he's experiencing or the cold that he's experiencing. Cause that's what the partner says. He tells the story about the, about, um, you know, some homeless people, the newspaper strike, the newspaper strike. Right. And, and men who freeze as a result. But that's not what's like bothering her so much. It's just the anonymity of it. Like that he has this life. He has parents. He has people. He had people that cared about him. And now he's just like Mm. on a park bench and people are like acting as if he doesn't exist. Like we're all so densely crammed together. And yet like he's invisible. And the anonymity, the very thing that Harry Call is striving for is what like devastates her about that scene. Mm. Um, Yeah. Anyway, I just I love that yeah. part, but it's it, it connected to me in terms of just like living in a dense city and being around people and being in a community and like your lives are intersecting in such ways. And yet also it can be so impersonal and and, and anonymous to be yeah. in a city like that. The point I was going to make was Sorry. actually no, 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 this is good because the point <laughs> okay. I was going to make was in, exactly the exact opposite. Of that, oh, good, good, which good. Is, so just, okay. a, just as a counterpoint on, on what you're saying, which I love. I love that point. And I think it's a really good point. The, the point I was going to say was um, that. um so w- w- 
if you think about how there are these generations that have lived in the spaces that we now occupy, in this case, Harry Call occupies, there will be people that live in the space he now occupies. Mm -hmm. And what he's finding when he peels back the wall is he's finding the traces of these past generations. Like he's finding that he can never be fully anonymous because mm -hmm. he will leave traces that future generations will find. They'll find the footprints that he left mm -hmm. in the ground, so to speak. Um, and there'll be these things that, that you know, so he, in a way, this quest for anonymity and privacy is a futile one. Right. And that's one thing you might think of the, the, um, the, um, the, you know, the wallpaper revealing is that like, yeah, underneath the wallpaper is the, the past, you know, the, the traces <laughs> of the past generation. Um, so it's a weird, in a weird way, the exact opposite of what you were saying, yeah. but, but yeah, I think yeah. that I, I think both ideas can sort of live in the same space. Mm. Um, Harry call so many contradictions. He is, he's a bundle <laughs> a of, of contrasts. Yeah. yeah. I could, you want me to bum you guys out really quick? Yes. Please. Yes. Uh, I was feeling so much too cheerful. To, right. To, to your last point, Justin, um, I'm going to tell a little story. Yeah. So many years ago, uh, so in, in my old apartment in San Francisco, I had two French doors that separated the living room from the bedroom. And at one point, one of them got like messed up or something. And you, you would have this constant flow of air that would come down from like the attic of the building through the doorway, which smelled funny. Mm -hmm. And you would get like smells from other people's apartments blowing down. And when an ex-girlfriend of mine moved in with me, uh, it, she couldn't, she couldn't handle it. And so I, <laughs> I didn't tell the building owner, but I, I tore the wall open. I cut a big hole in the wall and like filled it up with expanding foam. Oh, nice. And put it, and put drywall over it. And I patched it up so that it, you could never tell. But before I did that, I left a letter in the wall <gasps> and talking about like myself and what, like what the date was and what was going on. And like, here, you know, That's and so I mentioned cool. like, oh, you know, I love this apartment and here's like when I moved in, et cetera, et cetera. But here's, so here's the, here's the bummer. When I moved out of that place, and this is something that sadly is very common in the last four or five years, when the, the most recent tech boom hit, you had a lot of building owners that would go to their management companies and they would, the second anybody would move out of a building, they would go in and literally gut the mm -hmm. entire unit down to the studs and remove all traces of anything that was there before. And then like put fresh drywall up and like cheap Home Depot trim mm -hmm. and like cheap Ikea cabinets. And they would sell the, they would um, market these things as like upscale units mm -hmm. and because they looked fresh and fancy and modern mm -hmm. and you would completely lose all of the character and all of the like, you know, again, the stories that you would yep. be able to see just by looking around. And that for me, that was like a huge, huge bummer when I moved away was just knowing the fact that like the second I moved out of that place, that all of those traces would be completely destroyed forever. You, you know, just to continue, let's just keep adding on to this, uh, because I think right. what what they're doing there is they by removing the character is they're anonymizing it by making mm -hmm. it exactly, exactly like every other one. They're making yep. it just like, yeah, you're in your unit, but your unit's the same as everyone else's unit. There's nothing, there's no Robert's note in the wall because nope. we got rid of it. <laughs> right. And that's also the larger well, process that's happening in the city of San Francisco yeah. in this moment, to, like in exactly. the 70s, but also right when Robert leaves. But like, yeah. that's the well, process and, and, that's happening in the background of this movie the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and more recently, you know, with regard to San Francisco history, you have and, and in a lot of places like New York and I'm sure Boston, uh, you have people who come to a place, 
they make a ton of money and then they, they're they not there to like put roots down. No. They're not there to yeah. like add their character to the space or invest in the culture or community. They're just there to make a buck and then they move back to Omaha or wherever yep. and they buy a mansion and that's like their life. Um, and that's what's, you know, that's the truth of what happens with most people uh, that, that move to a place like that these days. It's almost like you moved to a place like San Francisco for the bragging rights, whereas somebody <laughs> 30 years ago would have moved there because they wanted to be like a part of the community. And th there's this notion of community. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's also, I think a lot of it is, is, is that people move to these places when they're young, they have a job there in tech. And then they want to have a family and they're like, yeah. well, your, your priorities are different. Yeah. And then their priorities change. But I think it's like, but it wasn't always that way. You would, you could just no. live in the city and you would, you could like, you know, th there was space for people to raise their families and so on. Um, but the I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that as recently as 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, right. yeah. and that's, that was the sad part of me living. Anyway, it's a bummer. I don't want to <laughs> go on about this, but that's a whole other podcast. Oh my God, I'm going to be <laughs> thinking about that note in the wall for the a while The note in the wall now. is, that's really cool. I, I wonder if it's still there. I mean, it's been like five years since, I, or two years since I moved mm -hmm. away almost, yeah. but uh, yeah, so. <laughs> um, it's, should, should we just like maybe do a round robin on like where we thought he, uh, he lost the thread? Harry oh yeah, Call? okay. I mean, I I feel like he lost the thread in the um in the hotel room. In the hotel room, I think it happened before. Yeah. Where? When? <laughs> really? I wonder if it happened before this movie started. Mm. I wonder yeah. if he's <laughs> like I don't know how much of this job is real. Mm. I don't know. Like, mm. <laughs> well, so what's interesting is that earlier in the film, um, there's a cut to the like the murder scene, just like randomly put in there. Oh. Yeah. And it, is this guy imagining this? Yeah. Like, wh where is the, is, he, is that like a thought that was in his head beforehand? And then he sort of like is trying to apply that to whatever con like construed thing he's made up. That's interesting. Yeah. I think watching his interaction with Amy made me feel like mm. he was really off kilter. Like she mm. sings a little song and it's the same song that Anne sang. And he's like, where did you hear that? Why did you sing that? And, you know, it might spook him. I can imagine how, like, he's ruminating on this on this recording. It's bothering him. And then she sings the same song. Like, that's eerie. It's spooky. But it's not like he goes into an accusatory mode immediately. And I think the kind yeah. of, like, conspiratorial paranoia that he has to already, that headspace he has to already be in in order to be like, why did you sing that? I think he's already lost the thread. Yeah. I think he's like. I mean, he's definitely not a balanced person. No, uh, no. But I, I do wonder, like, at that point, like, how much the the good the crazy thing about this recording is that like nobody else has heard it really. Like Stanley helps record it, but like yeah. nobody else has stuck it together. He has no outside confirmation that any of this is happening. And I true. I just I don't know, guys. I think he I think he might have made the whole thing up. It just feels like the you know this anonymous director that office building doesn't feel real. It's mm. it's all so strange. Did you have a thought, of Robert? Did you are you going hotel? Um, I'm gonna go with hotel. Okay. Uh, to me, to me. But from what it sounds like, from what we've talked about in the last, you know, X amount of time, it's, it sounds like my perspective is much more concrete than yours. <laughs> the, the, the really, the, the, the whole movie makes a lot of sense to me in a lot mm. of ways, uh, as far as like how one thing leads to another. The, the one thing that I do have a problem with is the fact that you have like, there's, a, there's a sequence of cuts where after he at, like he flushes the toilet and then all this blood comes out and then he just leaves like whatever there's a I just left a ton of blood everywhere like nobody <laughs> and my fingerprints and then you have and and then you have later on uh, what I think during the press conference it cuts back to the hotel room and yep. there's there's these shortcuts of like blood smears yep. and like stuff everywhere right. like a murder scene and and at that point 
I always think like, okay, what, what did he actually see in that room? Mm. Or is he making this up? Is this a projection? I, I don't know. Personally, I think it's it's just a tool that Coppola used to like as as part of the the sort of adding to the intensity of that particular scene, um, showing that like yeah they're having this press conference and like everybody's lying about how the director died and you know Cindy Williams goes off uh, and uh, goes on uh, and you know gets the limo and like the controlling interest in the company uh, and that's sort of. Uh, held against this like bloody murder scene yeah. uh, that happened previously. Yeah. I mean, it could be that he's just sort of imagining like what might have happened, but the guy did die. Yeah. She did, you know, take him out and so on. So, yeah. 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 And they had yeah, to I move it's, it's the a, body it's... from the hotel into some sort no, of. No, they put him in the toilet. They ground him up. <laughs> oh, right. I forgot <laughs> about the garburator right. toilet. Yeah, I've got the I'm garburator. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies to the Jack Tar Hotel. That's, that's what you get when you buy the deluxe room. Come on. That's what happens. Come on, Laura. Yeah. You can't do it anymore. It's not sheet. there anymore. I'm just saying, it's in Dallas, there, was like, um, there used to be, so you know, there's, um, in Dallas, there's a museum, Justin's in there with me, called the Sixth Floor Museum, which is at the Book Depository where Lee Harvey Oswald oh, shot, wow. um, shot President Kennedy. Or did he? Or did he? Anyway, sorry. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Just it's like, if you get into, I'm going to make us watch JFK. Yeah, at point we're going to do the JFK And we're going to find episode, out that I'm like that a movie. lunatic. But anyway, oh sorry. My, God. my point is, across, for years, many, many years, it's no longer there, which is a bummer. But there was a, a dude who set up his own rogue museum called the Conspiracy Museum that explained how like every assassination in a period of 150 years were all connected, man. And it had like, <laughs> videos and charts and stuff it was like a real place you could pay admission it wasn't just like justin saw a guy explaining the why wow. the grassy knoll was like he saw some lunatic like you know peddling his dvd outside the outside the the actual book depository museum that's not this this was like bank. a physical museum justin and it was okay. so cool okay so that makes it legit then yes how can you no, argue no, no, with no, the no. physical so this, museum? Is like a, this is an actual like space that he, somebody rented yes and... he paid rent for the museum Holy the conspiracy shit. museum but I'm not saying that this guy was right. My point is, I feel like this whole director in a, you know, got murdered in a hotel room and then they moved the body from the hotel room into the, into the feels like something that that guy from the conspiracy museum would cook up. I don't <laughs> think it, any of this happened. Laura that's sees fair. a conspiracy everywhere. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the great thing about a film like this or, you know, a lot of these kinds of films is that you, you can, it, it, it leaves you asking what the hell happened. Yeah. You know, Justin's going to cut this great. whole thing about the no, computers. I know no. you are. It's staying in. Um, it's staying I can feel in. It. It's going to play gonna twice. It's going to play twice. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let's, <laughs> let's now transition slightly yes, from plot. Do let's. Although this is still relevant to the plot. The pivotal. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, Hold yeah, on. yeah. Uh, are you going to talk about the bug? No. Uh, oh, yeah. Gonna... So you want to say about the bug? Sorry. I was gonna. We skip. That's like the most one of the like best things in the movie that leaves it off at the end is like, where is the bug? Okay. Well, yes. Good. Where sorry. is I, the bug? I had assumed that there is no bug, but sorry, on your interpretation, Robert, there is a bug. So oh, where man. where is the damn bug then? So the, I, I I've changed my mind. Okay. Originally, when I first saw the film, so earlier earlier in the movie, you've got Moran talking about this like thing that he made over the phone, where like mm -hmm. yeah. the phone doesn't even pick up and it records what's in the room. Yeah, the and harmonica they, like, tone thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, the first time I saw that movie, I thought uh, that's what it is because mm. he has the phone in the room yep. and mm -hmm. like it doesn't ring. And then all of a sudden he plays it back with the stuff, yeah. uh, you know, with him playing the saxophone. I th like I th that to me, that that explained everything really. But quickly. he takes apart the phone. 
but he takes the phone apart. Right. So I mean, but the the thing is, is that the the thing, even though it was he like played it off like bullshit uh, at the convention. Moran's device might be an actual thing. Yeah. So, and, and it doesn't, and it didn't, re- the way he described it, it did not require the phone on the receiving end to have any alteration. That's interesting. Oh, wow. You right. just have to know the number. Yeah. That's you have to know the right. number and then do the harmonica thing. I'm, I, th- so I'm still like on the fence, but I, I think that's what it was. Hmm. Uh, however, most other people seem to think that the device is in the saxophone itself. Oh, oh it's the only thing he, he doesn't take apart. Yeah. Which he doesn't take apart. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a like terrible place apart. to put a bug, though. You wouldn't hear anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just have to It'd adjust the level way down. That's all. Yeah. But that yeah. does, if yeah. you're thinking conspiracy brain, the yeah. Moran thing, I, I I forgot that that was that they said it doesn't have to alter the device because I thought that was yeah. out as soon as he takes apart the thing. But, of course, like the woman who Moran is working with the like to show off the wares is yeah. like used by Harrison Ford yeah. to get the tapes. Mm. So, like, it's yeah. all connected, man. Yeah. He maybe oh, yeah. you know. Well, I yeah. think Harrison Ford hired Moran. Yeah. Uh-huh. And 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 the whole time. And that's why they're Moran's pushing just, so hard. The exactly. one they're like asking for all his secrets, they're trying to hang out yep. with him. She's hitting on him so that hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Maybe so. actually, you know what? Maybe I'm gonna hang out with that guy on the grassy knoll. I think <laughs> now I'm back to conspiracy <laughs> theories. <laughs> oh my god. No, I thought there was no yeah. bug. But there's also the final pan. Oh man, that's great. Yeah, the security the campaign. So, yeah, the security campaign where, you know, after Harry has totally destroyed his entire apartment and there's a huge pile of debris <laughs> on one side of the room and like all of his all of his possessions are completely obliterated, including the like sacred, you know, Mary doll that he had that yep. he tore apart with his bare hands. Yep. Uh, you know, all this stuff is just piled up and the camera does this amazing slow pan all the way over to the left and then back to the right. And then back to the left again in one shot. Yep. And ends. It eventually ends on like a view out the window with the lamp in the in the middle or something like that. But it's and it, Coppola's vision for that obviously was to reflect you know surveillance. Mm-hmm. This guy's being surveyed, and you have you know this view of his entire life is totally destroyed and everything's in shambles. And uh, you know, and he's being watched on top of that. I think it's also cool because it's what what is watching him us the viewer the Mm -hmm. audience like and the camera is this what is a camera in a narrative fiction film it's invisible it's this thing that the character can never will never see because you know they never they they can never recognize that thing um and so it's uncontrolled exhibition yeah you know Mm -hmm. and we're all the voyeurs and we are the voyeur whatever's going on yeah um which is that is very cool i think like it does make, you know, it does implicate the audience in a, in that kind of Hanukkahian way mm-hmm. of, of yes. like, you know, we are I mean, in, in a way that, of course, as we mentioned, Hitchcock, Hitchcock does with Rear Window as well um, oh, yeah. uh, a lot. And so, you you know, it's not like new to Coppola, but I think it is very much. Um, yeah, it is very much. It's refined. Yeah, there's this, you know, it's it's, it's a doubling it, of the. Yeah. So lin- linguistics. Yes. Yeah. Justin. Can you explain this to us? Okay, so well, let's let's start out with I'll say the line the two ways, and then I'm going to ask you what, how, like what, what do you think the meaning is in the two different ways? You and then do what, a flipped cast classroom, yeah, flipped style. classroom, and then and then I'll I'll give you my <laughs> very rough explanation of what I think is happening, but it's not satisfying because I don't feel like there I found or could think of a satisfying explanation of how we figured this out as like humans who understand English. We, 
we know it automatically that there's a difference in 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 the meaning here but exactly why there is that difference is 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 eluded me so here's the first way he hears the line this is you know he's harry call is eavesdropping on these two people and the one guy says to the lady he'd kill us if he gets the chance he'd kill us if he got the chance all right and then at the end of the movie he hears the line this way he'd kill us if he got the chance you think we can do this later in the week sunday maybe sunday definitely jack tar hotel three o'clock room 773 kill us if he got the chance Okay, so I put it to you guys, what, the first way, what do you think, I mean, we've already sort of said this, but like, what do you think they're talking about? I mean, what do you think the plan, because remember, they're talking about like going to a hotel room, blah, 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 Jack Parr Hotel and all that. So, so what do you think, like, what do we fill in as, as audience members? The first, on the first one. The first one, I feel like they're afraid for their lives. Like they're, um, they, they're in an affair and they mm-hmm. think that they may be in danger if the if the director finds out. Mm-hmm. Harry Call feels that if he gives the director that information, that in fact, the director will act upon that. And, wh- and then where are they going to the hotel? They oh, talk just as a that. rendezvous, I had thought like they were just going to like meet up to have have like an affair, yeah, have an affair. Assumption as well. But yeah. now Harry Call's worried that if they he if the director has the details of that, of their room number and time that he may show up and make trouble. Yeah. Cause I, well, and that's the well, that's ultimately the setup. Is it, the whole situation exactly. is the setup for the director? Yeah, but we'll exactly. get to that. Right, right. Um, so that's yeah. my that's how I interpreted it until the turn. In the I, yeah. I, I agree. I actually heard it a little bit more. I wanted to read a little bit more into it, partly because I was like, well, why would he say he'd kill us if he got the chance? Like, what what is the preceding bit of discourse that we don't hear? Right, we're filling something in. What is the thing that immediately precedes hmm. that? And I was thinking it's something like we need to run. We need to get uh, out of here. Oh, because I Because he'd kill us if he got the chance. Like, we need to not give him the chance to kill us. I see. So, so we, it's not just like an afternoon trip. Yeah, it's you like might think we're, out, we're getting out We're absconding. Here. Like, uh-huh. we're getting out. That's kind of what I was Interesting. thinking. Okay, but then now let's flip it. So here's the other read. He'd kill us if he got the chance. Well, they're, they're setting up a situation where they know that the director will hear that, that audio and well, they, they don't know that he'll hear that line, right. but he, kn- he they know that they are being watched and that they're suspected by the director mm-hmm. and it's likely that they are being recorded. And so, you know, I mean, he obviously says like Jack Tar Hotel Sunday, whatever, three, whatever PM. Yep. Uh, so that he meets them there and he confronts them and which he eventually does with the audio from that conversation. Yeah. Right. And uh, which, you know, again, gives them the opportunity to then, to then um, take him out. Yeah, but yeah. the change you know, in emphasis. Let, let him go and die in a car accident. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the change in emphasis flipped it for like from thinking like we're the we are we're the victims. victims and we're yeah. afraid right. to like, we're the perpetrator. We're the perpetrators. Like he would kill yeah. us if he got the chance, and us. therefore we are going to so take actions well to get uh, get the jump on him. That's the thing. So yes. I, so the magic of it is that what the difference in emphasis is doing is it's it's helping us as English speakers reconstruct what they probably were talking about right before he said that line, which mm-hmm. we don't hear. And I, I think 
it's I think you're right, Laura. It's it has to be or both of you is that it, it has to be something like we should kill him or we have to kill him because he'd kill us if mm-hmm. he got the chance. Yeah, like the clock's ticking. Like they've got to do something. Exactly. And now I couldn't figure out why that is. Okay. So why is it that when you have emphasis on heed and us, it calls to mind the inverse, the reverse, us kill him in the way that we just specified. We need to kill him. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a couple things here that I'm just going to sketch a few things, but I, I don't have a good answer here. But so there is independently of this, you can use this kind of contrastive focus to indicate that you're resolving um, a pronoun uh, in a way that's unusual. So I'll give you an example. So if I say, Paul called Jim a Republican, then he insulted him. Who's insulting who? Paul, the guy who called Jim a Republican, is insulting Jim, right? The order of the he and him goes with the order of subject and object from the previous Mm. discourse. But if you flip the accent, if you do the contrastive accent, it flips it. So if you say, Paul called Jim a Republican, then he insulted him. Uh. It flips Mm. it. So now you flip the order of the the two. So that's one interesting just like fact. And there some people have, uh, there's been a, there's an argument in linguistics about why exactly. Paul's a jerk. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 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 Um, But there's an argument about why that, why that is, but that's not quite, what we're doing here, because what we're doing here is not what is called anaphora resolution, resolving what the pronouns refer to. We're doing something else. So I was thinking it's more like this. So if I say, um, if you just heard out of the blue, um, somebody say, she kissed him. What that calls to mind is that someone has raised the possibility of the opposite that mm-hmm. he kissed her. Mm-hmm. So so you here's two ways this this discourse could go. You could imagine somebody asking, did Bill kiss Sue? And somebody saying, no, she kissed him. That's one way you could hear it. So the uh, the possibility of the inverse has been raised. Another way is somebody could just say, Bill kissed Sue and then the other person say, no, she kissed him. All right, so the the flipping again. So so that's what I think is going on is that is that in the prior discourse Here's, here's how I could understand their discourse. We should kill him. He would kill us if he had the chance. That, kind, that discourse makes sense, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's sort of we're flipping the thing that we previously said, and that's what the accent is helping to, to sort of indicate. Right. Notice that it doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. We should run. He would kill us if he had the chance. That doesn't make any sense. That's such a strange thing to say yeah. because, mm. right, as opposed to we should run, he would kill us if he had the chance. That makes yeah. sense. And so I think it's something like that of this congruence between the previous discourse and it has something to do with this parallelism between he kills us, us kill him, and that's what's being flipped by the focal stress. But I don't have any explanation of why that works. But what I think is so fascinating about all this is that every English speaker in the audience Got gets it. immediately. It. You get it instantly. Yeah. Yeah. You understand yeah. it just as an English speaker immediately that there's a flip. Maybe you fill the blank in differently. You know, we all filled it in a slightly differently, but you get that there's that immediate difference and it takes a but lot of- But the antagonist of, is like, I mean, everybody understood that part. Yeah, right? everyone yeah. got that. Who's the protagonist? Who's the antagonist or whatever? Who's the being right. attacked and who's right. doing the attacking? But what I think is so interesting is that already it took me an hour just to get to this. 
I'm just <laughs> looking at research on focus and realizing there's not really anything on this that I could draw on. And it takes so much con conscious intellectual effort to unpack this thing that we process as humans instantly. Mm. And that's basically why I find linguistics fascinating. That's all that's of linguistics point. is that is just oh, like doing this thing that we're like effortless. We can understand instantly and then just sitting down and trying to figure out why. Mm. <laughs> well, especially in, in, in the English language, there is just so much that's inferred or like you're saying is, is a direct function of just some minor inflection of a word yeah. or a syllable. Yeah. You know, and that's why English is such a difficult language for non-English speakers to learn because there's just so much nuance in, in the tone of voice you use and like the way you end a sentence, you know, let alone really basic things like the fact that a lot of other languages don't even have plurals and, and things like that. Yep. Uh, but, you know, English, like you're saying, in, in this particular instance, there there would have been a whole lead up to that particular line. Yeah. And as English speakers, we just assume that it was a function of whatever came before. Yeah. And like, I didn't even, until you brought this up, I, I'd never even thought of that before. Yeah, um, but this is, this I is, just make the assumption. Yeah, exactly. We just assume automatically and we, and we're not consciously interrogating it, but that's what we're doing. And I'm, I'm, I feel relatively confident that it's because we implicitly made that assumption that allowed us to infer the, like, who's attacking who thing. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that we right. ultimately all get to. We get there in slightly different ways, but it's by way of this kind of, this crux of, well, we're just inferring what came prior to that in the discourse. Mm -hmm. And I will say one other thing about this is that pretty much we're doing this all the time. So we're only ever really consciously aware of like, I don't know, some small percentage of what people are saying. We're always the discourse is kind of cutting in and out. You're half paying attention and stuff. So you're always reconstructing. We're constantly doing mm -hmm. this reconstructing. Well, yeah, well, what were they saying there? Or what did they mean by this thing? Oh, they must have meant must have been presupposing this other thing. We're constantly like going back and relitigating earlier parts of the conversation and re-understanding them in light of yeah. what's coming later in the conversation. Yeah. It's just a constant thing that we do automatically as speakers, native speakers of a language. And anyway, it's, I, I just find this stuff fascinating. This is a, an amazing and brilliant distillation of so all of simple. this. It's so simple yeah. and yet so complex. Right. Yeah, exactly. When I was mixing the film, Francis was off in Godfather 2 shooting in New York. And I was mixing the film, but in the back of my mind, thinking always, how can we help this process? And then out of the blue, I remembered a recording that I had made with Fred Forrest and Cindy Williams, who play the couple in the conversation. And I'd recorded a wild track, a separate track of them saying the conversation and they and I went out with a Nagra or tape recorder to another park in San Francisco but in a residential area where there was no noise or interference and I just they just walked around the park and I walked in front of them recording the conversation so they said their lines and I recorded it with them actually walking so you get the effort of them moving so it doesn't sound artificial on the third take Fred said, instead of he'd kill us if he had the chance, he said he'd kill us if he had the chance. So the emphasis was different. And I remember noting in my notebook, the third take is the wrong reading of the line. But in the middle of mixing the film, I thought, I'm going to find that reading. Where is that reading? And so I dug around in the old tapes and came up with this third take. And I transferred that 
and put it in the film at the very end of the film when Harry is realizing that those two kids are still alive and they've taken over the business and the, the Robert Duval character is dead, seemingly in an accident. What's going on? And in the middle of all that, the line gets replayed, he'd kill us if he had the chance, which implies, therefore, we have to kill him. And you don't even know who he really is or what their relationship is with him. That, that's all deliberately undernourished plot information. Is she his wife? Maybe. She could be his daughter. We, we just don't know. It, you know. And that, that's a deliberate strategy on Francis's part. Anyway, I mixed that in and flew to New York with this version of the film and played the mix for Francis. And I, I prepared Francis ahead of time and I said, I, you know, I changed the rules here at the end. And we have this different reading of the line. And at the end, he said, no, I like it. But, yeah, leave it in. Yeah. I was thinking movies too, like draw on the way our brains fill in that information. That's how like the visual language of films relies on that. Yes. And it's like a combination exactly. of like drawing on how we, what we already do, but like it's drawing on like how we've read images for, you know, thousands of years, iconography wise, but also like there and, and, and drawing on the way that like our brains work, like you said, with the J, the J cut, J yeah. cut the J right. Cut, yeah. Um, with like or how even just like the tropes you see in movies yep. right but like but some of it is is also constructed as a con, as some movie. of it is conventional is, yeah right, right. like right. It, in the beginning of making of a filmmaking like they had to they created like some of the film language that we now yep. unconsciously uh take for granted the way that we do in our language with the emphasis thing and we don't yep. even like process it anymore yep. yeah that's yeah that's right. the whole nature of film of filmmaking and editing is you know, it's it's something that's been slowly constructed over time. Yeah. Like if if you would have seen, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen old movies from like the 20s and 30s. They're super janky yep. and weird yeah. to watch because there's no established like visual language yep. and let let alone sound cuts, which is, which is a thing that happens later on. Yep. You know that that it, the language of e even just the be to the ability to project something using that particular medium is you know is an art in itself. Yep. And again, like you know, films in the in the 19th century, like early movies, they were just people didn't even know what to shoot. They would just like shoot a dog walking yeah. down the side. <laughs> they would yeah. go to a theater and pay you know 50 cents or whatever they would pay, and they'd be like, "Oh my god, this is so amazing!" Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas later on, the idea of actually telling a story through this medium became a thing, and then you know, it, it develops organically over time and stylistically over time, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a result of uh, technological change as well. I mean, what we're watching, weirdly, I think, is the evolution of a kind of language. It's not quite language, but it's an, it's an evolution of a kind of conventionality mm -hmm. about how to tell stories with this visual medium um, that's, a, that's, that's happening in slow motion. Because language evolution actually happens quite quickly. Um, you know, you get language innovation every year. There's new words added to the dictionary. There's, you know, um, I mean, I guess well, and existing words change their meaning. Existing words and, change know, their meaning. And we can we can yeah. innovate this language like right here in this conversation. We could innovate and make up a, a roughly a new language that builds off of English very quickly. It's okay. not hard to establish these new things on the fly. You can kind of make sense of what I'm doing, even if I just started, you know, speaking gibberish all of a sudden. Um, but yeah. what's interesting in in with this filmmaking is you're seeing this process evolving organically 
um, in slow motion over the course of a hundred and whatever, 120 mm -hmm. years or something. So, um, yeah. and it, it, I think that's well, so it's, cool. And it's a universal language in a way, right? It's, yeah. I, I hesitate to use the word language here because that's actually controversial, but it's a, these conventions are quasi-universal in that they're- it's, it's more universal than just speaking English exactly, or exactly. French or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's more, it's more accessible to people because it's a visual, it's a visual medium. Yeah. But even more than that, um, you know, the, like the sound effects you use create mood mm -hmm. and like the music you use create mood, creates mood. And that's, that's, those are universal aspects uh, of, of filmmaking and film editing Absolutely. that speak to everyone. That's what I think is- you know, you, you could watch a German film and like not know what the hell they're talking about, but you could sort of vaguely follow the plot based yeah. on like the feel of the music and, you know, the way that you're pushed through it. Yeah. And without any language, too, you might be able to tell how much time has passed or like it, exactly. just by the way that they're cutting. Yeah. I mean, there are I do find it interesting because unlike human language, this is where a point of disanalogy, uh, a lot of the conventions of film um have in their as their basis um natural uh signifiers so to speak so like you know um screechy violins scary and um calming music happy or whatever right those things yeah. and like people you know you have all these natural signifiers that you can draw on um you know jarring cuts like staccato kind of quick cuts like yeah. chaos it's a language Right? But but that's 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 not conventional. That's just like we are humans, and this this kind of comes about. Mm -hmm. Whereas like think about like the words we use. That's totally conventional. There's no relationship oh, yeah. between like um, you know uh, dog and the dogs. That's just a like total. And every language has a different word for that. There are very few words which have that kind of natural one. Like some onomatopoeia maybe, mm -hmm. or like you know these things. Those are like the few kind of things which they 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 really. If immediately sound or evoke the very thing there but there's very little of that so film in that way is unlike language and it's drawing a lot on mm -hmm. non-conventional things and conventionalizing mm -hmm. them to tell you know to do this sort of um dead you know co-opting them that's in these true. narrative ways yeah, that's and that's the fascinating thing I, f I find about filmmaking is that the as it's gone through time is that the language of filmmaking has developed obviously and it's all but it's all contextual you know, the, the very fact that we as associate screeching violins with danger is because of Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the very, and, you know, and the very fact that we associate like quick cuts is because of like action movies and thrillers from like the 50s and 60s, because that's, they felt that doing that would like, would speak to a certain kind of lizard brain yeah. feel. Yeah. And so they've, that has become associated with that emotion it's and like that feeling. Reinforced. It's reinforced. Exactly. It's a self-feeding, it's, it's, it's a cycle that kind of feeds that's itself. That's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. I mean, I think uh, nowhere is this clearer, I think the clearest example of this is like that we settled on 24 frames per second as like exactly. the, the medium because there's something about 24 which yeah. feels like it's lifelike but not so lifelike. Not too lifelike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, right. and, and then it just became conventional. It could have been 25, it could have been 23, but for some well, reason- in France it is 25. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but you know, it could have been a little more, a little less, but once you get beyond that, yeah. once you get into like, you know, six, you know, get up to the sixties, it starts to look real weird. Oh us. my God. Yeah. We start to see. It's, it's like uncanny valley territory. Exactly. Yeah. Really bizarre. It's too, it's too, yeah. the motion is too smooth. It's, and, and, yeah. um, and so, but that is itself somewhat conventionalized, you know, like there's, it, it's a mixture of the two. And so, um, yeah, exactly. Teasing out how much of that is conventionalized and how much of it is just purely the lizard brainy stuff, I think is an interesting, yeah. uh, a question. Definitely. And, and, 
Um, you know, and you do wonder. I mean, I think there are some filmmakers like I, I believe Ang Lee believes that, mm. you know, 24 was just like a weird thing we hit Somebody on. Somebody just put a stake in the ground. Yeah. It's like, whatever. And it's yeah. like, we could have easily given 60. 60 could like, have been easily been 120 plus is what Ang thinks. Well, right. Ang thinks it should be even higher. But I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there was other reasons going for 24 rather than 60, which is that film would it cost money. And yeah. Like nobody, yeah. You know, like, but, but besides yeah. those economic things, you know, Ang, I think, is thinking like, yeah, if economic things weren't a factor, maybe our eyes would have preferred 60. Mm -hmm. Who knows? It's a, we will never know. Gemini Man was 100. Yeah. How much was Gemini, Gemini Man? Gemini Man was 120, but we saw it in 60. Uh, That's right. It was 120. I forgot. 120. About Robert, can we will never funny, see it in Funny story. But that was the last yeah. movie that we saw together in theaters because, uh, because, you know, we had a kid and everything. <laughs> and so, um, so we, we, but we were like, look, we got to see Gemini Man in as high a frame rate 3D as we can. Cause this is like the last chance yes. we're going to be able to do this. Yeah. And so we went and, and saw it and it was an empty theater. We saw it like one in the afternoon, completely mm -hmm. empty theater. And um, it was a weird experience. So weird. It's I very bet. weird. Yeah. 3D. That would have been super trippy. 3D 60 frames per second is kind of. It's wild. Unbelievably wild. Like. <laughs> you settle into it though like but the first 30 yeah. minutes though i was just making like ah no, noises I mean, like all the time it's jarring at first <laughs> but, but what no but what's really cool about it it's not just that it's like oh look at this it's so stupid it looks like a soap opera but what's really cool is that the 3d looks more um real oh, than yeah. than it does in 24 because huh. it breaks that kind of it looks like it's been described by other people this way but it looks like you're looking through the screen and seeing interesting like, yeah like a world like actually an actual space yeah an actual space and that is fascinating very strange and i never got that feeling with i mean maybe a little bit with ab when i saw avatar in 3d in a theater you know you know what the first 3d movie i ever saw was captain eo at disneyland oh which was a coppola film amazing <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was. I don't know if you guys know what that nope. was, but there was a there was a, a ride. It was a ride. It was an experience at Disneyland that was in like the mid '80s, uh, where Michael Jackson was supposed to be like some. I can't even remember. He was like a space alien captain. I saw this on Coppola's filmography when I was looking yeah. at it. I was like, that's bizarre. Okay, please. I'm it sorry, was continue. super weird. There were like Muppets and shit in it. It was sure. it was really bizarre. Uh, but all I remember is it was it was the first time I ever saw three three D film, and I must have been like I don't know eight at the time or something i don't know um and i and i had to like take the glasses off. so intense because it was so yeah, it was, yeah and that was just a 24 frame so you know technology it, it is it is interesting um yeah i though the i think i probably saw it must have been one of those that i saw not that one but yeah. um that was my first 3d because i saw one of the like muppet ones in 3d or something oh nice at disney world but but avatar wasn't was a very oh, strange yeah. experience and really cool avatar is yeah, it's, you know, it has its benefits and also its issues. Yeah, totally. But, you know, it's a pretty amazing film. <laughs> it's really cool in theaters. I We watched it at home and because Laura had never seen it and it just, it's not the same movie. No. On, on the, it really. No, you have to watch it in a theater. It's so weird. I, I never. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Let's, let's get I back wanna, on track. I want to make sure we get to the location yes, scouting no, we stuff got a location. because right. I may turn into a pumpkin, you know, fairly okay, quickly. Can, so I'm not trying to, through that. I'm not trying to rush no, you, Roger. No, 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 no. no. Let's, I don't want you to location. rush you at all. I want, okay. I want to make sure you give it its full due. All right. So Robert, take us through San take Francisco. Take us on a tour of San Francisco in uh, the various shots in this movie <laughs> in 1974. Okay. So 
you know, again, I, I lived in in the city uh, for you know, you know a very long time and uh, long enough anyway. I have literally been or have walked past or am relatively intimately familiar with most of the locations in this movie. Hell yeah. Uh, so we'll start with the first one, Harry's Shop. Uh, now that's it's an old brick building down at 16th and Rhode Island in Petrero. Um, it's uh, it's I think it's like a design company is there now. Hmm. And uh, in the movie, you know, you look in the room and there's just like brick and wooden uh, wooden columns, and that's it. Yeah. This is obviously pre eighty nine quake. There's no reinforcing anywhere. The building is super unsafe. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they, they made a lot of changes uh, after that. And uh, I, I saw there's a, a couple websites where they went through all the locations and took like current photos and ones then. And that particular location used to be right next to um, a spur line for the Western Pacific Railroad, mm. uh, which used to have a tunnel that ran through Petrero Hill. Uh, and in 1962, the tunnel caught fire and collapsed. Wow. Uh, and a bunch of houses like fell into the holes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh when you see harry like walking across the railroad tracks yeah. to go into the building that's what the tracks are oh, and they obviously aren't there anymore they took those out like in the 80s wow uh so there's that location uh there's also harry's apartment and so a bit of trivia i did not know this until i was doing the research for this podcast but i have been in that building really and, oh my god yeah uh, so, geez. Where is it? Uh, it's it's 700 Laguna. It's in like Hayes Valley-ish. It's like lower Fillmore, Hayes Valley. Uh, it's closer to Hayes Valley. Hmm. Um, so about, t let's see, now would have been 12 years ago. Um, I was looking for a new apartment and was checking out a bunch of places. And there was an ad for an apartment in that building. And uh, I went, and, I, and I, I know that building, and I know that that's the building because I remember it being really odd that there were just tons of garages on the bottom floor. Mm -hmm. Like all, there's just like garage door after garage door. And and I know where the building is, and I looked it up on Google Maps, and I'm like, yep, that's the place. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember it being really dark on the inside, and like the hallways were super tiny. And, you know, I remember it just feeling really claustrophobic. Um, which is funny considering, you know, all of the themes of the movie. Yeah. There used, there used to be a freeway that went through that whole neighborhood that they tore down in like the nineties, mm. uh, early two thousands. Mm. And after that, it like completely got upscaled and gentrified. Oh man. Okay. So union square. Mm. Yes. So my last job was as the, uh, basically as the project art department, I was a, uh, photographer, videographer, graphic designer for the central subway project in San Francisco, which is a new subway that they are still building. <laughs> Uh, after it's like years behind schedule at this point. <laughs> um, but one of the stations, uh, the new subway stations is in union square. And so I would go down to union square constantly to, you know, check out the station and, and take photos and do whatever I was doing for my job. Uh, in addition to that, I've, um, been to union square many times for other reasons, because it's one of the sort of preeminent shopping locations in the city. And uh, so I, I would literally, like I've skateboarded in union square. Mm -hmm. Like I, I've, you know, I've been on dates there. Uh, in fact, the first time I actually came to San Francisco by myself, uh, I went to Union Square in 1999, and it was before they um, they renovated the square. Mm. So it actually looked like it did in the movie in 1974 mm. or 73 with like the hedges and the grass and everything. Uh, in, I want to say the early 2000s, when um, Willie Brown was mayor, he went on a whole like city sort of upscaling initiative uh, where they were they were building new parks and they were trying to like fix up parts of the city. And one of the things that they did was they completely de like demolished Union Square mm -hmm. and they rebuilt it all as this sort of big corporate plaza now. 
where you can like, it's basically there's a huge open space in the middle of the plaza and you can have like an ice skating rink and, mm -hmm. some, you know, other stuff. But it completely removed the sort of old school feel that uh, that you had uh, that that is represented in this movie. Like it's completely gone. I have a story uh, about the Weston St. Francis, which is the hotel that I believe they um, the conventions held at. The convention is held at exactly, which is right off of Union Square. It's right off of the Square. Um, so every oh well, not every but mo many the last ten years several times they've had the pacific apa in san francisco and whenever they have the pacific apa by the way the apa excuse me is the american philosophical association it's a one of three annual meetings of a bunch of philosophers and they have it in that hotel in west in st francis so i've stayed in that hotel many times and um and there are lots you know i've been in those conference rooms and given talks in them and so on um nice. one time we were Back in San Francisco, I don't remember if it was around when we were when we visited and hung out with you. It might have been actually. I think it so was. So we had just really? you had given us like an architectural tour. We had I maybe maybe we went to that <laughs> we went to that um sandwich place. Okay, and then after we said goodbye to you because you you had to get back to work, we uh we walked around for a bit and then I got like super dehydrated. <laughs> <laughs> and so I like suddenly had like a huge, a really bad headache and I was like nauseated and I didn't really know what to do. Oh, so, I, but we were close to Union Square. So I was like, all right, let's just drop into the West End because I know like, I know the hotel right really well. We can just like camp out in this part of the hotel and I'll like get my bearings. And then Laura had to like go to like, get Advil or yeah, something. Yeah, you were like having the vapors on like a cha on a chaise lounge or something. <laughs> and so I had to go by like get like a bottle of water and like a $7 blister packet of Advil or something <laughs> for, from the hotel gift right. shop yeah. to like revive yeah. my husband. I had to get revived. I don't know. We've been like walking around for too long. I just he didn't was drink like, enough water. I can't go on. And <laughs> anyway, so that's amazing. Yeah, that that happened right. I guess so, right after. Yeah, like it was just funny. We were like looking at the as soon as they showed the West and Justin and I looked at each other and I was like, oh yeah, that's where you had your headache. <laughs> yeah, that's where I had that's where you got the vapors. That's yeah, that's yeah. like what that what Union Square is like going to think make us think about now so forever funny. and ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, every every time I it's funny, every single time I shit you not, for many years now I've walked through the square. I've I've always done one of two things. I've either said he'd kill us if he got the chance. <laughs> or I've hummed the when the red, red robin goes ba 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 and along the yeah. song that yeah. the band is playing yeah. to myself as I walk through. Just as like a little treat that is why you are our guest on this episode robert i just think because <laughs> i'm that much of a dork no one no, it's great. no one so loves great. this movie more than you and not and that includes that's us true. who we really love this movie so we uh, do it's really yeah that's incredible well, i mean and, you know in, in addition to everything that we're talking about just you know I, I, san francisco and i grew up in oregon and i moved to san francisco for a lot of reasons because you know the place itself and what it had to offer at the time really spoke to me as a person and so you know, and I got I got very involved in a lot of communities there, and I still have a lot, like hundreds of friends that live there. And so it's you know you know even though the city that I love really doesn't exist anymore, yeah. uh, it's it's still you know sort of my chosen home, mm -hmm. and uh, you know that's something that I carry through my life. That is really cool, but it's also it's it's but it's melancholy because it it you, is you know you can't really go back to the place that it's yeah. not the same. Yeah. And um, it's kind of one of those things where you have, you have to sort of attempt to rectify it for yourself because you you know for a fact that you can never go back to whatever you consider quote unquote home. Yeah. Because uh, it literally, in my case, like this, the minute my, I moved out of that apartment, the literally the place I lived in was demolished. Yeah. yeah. 
And yeah. so, and like that and the fact that, you know, the culture in the city has changed yeah. and the economics of the entire Bay Area have changed so that like working class people can't live there anymore. Well, when you watch a movie like this and you're like, damn. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> that's, 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 that's like one of the, yeah, that's, that's one of the big points of this film for me personally is that like the, the city that you see like being born in this, while this movie was being filmed is the one that I got to know mm. when I first moved to San Francisco mm -hmm. and it was on its way out when I moved there and now it's, you know, this like hyper capitalist tech center. Yeah. Okay. So here's a bit of trivia that is, might seem trivial, but actually I think it's kind of interesting and is weirdly woven into the movie in an, in an interesting way. So Harry call, his last name is spelled C A U L. That was actually oh, right, yeah. uh, not intended to be that way. So originally, he, it was supposed to be Harry Call, C-A-L-L, -L, like literally like the, you call on the phone and he's going to bug you kind of thing. <laughs> um, but the, but so I, pay, I guess he, Coppola dictated this and the transcriptionist wrote down, she, she, she thought it was C-A-U-L. And when Coppola saw it at first, he was like, nah, that's wrong. But then he realized, he's like, you know what? This is actually better. It's better for two reasons. One is that it's not so on the nose, like C-A-L-L. -L. But the other thing is that um, a, a call is something. So apparently a call is the, it's a part of the amniotic sac that a fetus lives in. And apparently some babies are born um, of the call, which means they're born with part of the amniotic sac over their head. Oh, wow. um, and this is where the word cowl comes from. And what is a cowl but a thing you hide your face behind, mm -hmm. right? It's, a, it's like a hood that you hide, you use to hide your right. face. And so Coppola realized this and he thought, that's actually like way better, like happy accident. You can have this play into the theme of, of you know, this character who wants to hide himself. He's born of the call, um, so to speak. And, um, you know, he's this guy who, who needs privacy in a kind of weird, obsessive uh, way. That brings me to this other thing, which I was kind of curious about, and I didn't have much time to really investigate or think about. But, you, you know, most Americans value privacy. They think privacy is this somehow closely, almost inalienable sort of right that we have. But you might wonder. Well, they, they say they do. Well, they say, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a stated thing, but it, but it, it lies at the heart yeah. of like, you know, a... Um, uh, I think it's somehow, somehow part of like human nature that we desire to have a kind of private part of our lives. Um, but I was wondering why that is. Why is it that, let's just suppose it does matter, but why does privacy matter? Um, and I was curious if like off the cuff, you guys had any thoughts about this because it is, when you start to think about it, it's kind of interesting why you might think there is there first of all a unique right to privacy some people think there isn't it's just subsumed under other rights we have but but mm. but is there what would be the sort of reason we think privacy is valuable i mean cuz here's one answer one answer is well no no, no we want to have control over our lives so it's like it's just about control it's like you want to be able to control um you know like what you eat for lunch and the same way you want to be able to control what other people know about you and that speaks to, I think, to us, well, I mean, you can argue either way on this, but I think it speaks to a certain degree to survival. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you can't choose what you're eating or if you can't choose what, like, what risks you take in your own life or 
what risks you put like your loved ones uh, against your loved ones, those that that again speaks to the, sort of the survival instincts that we have. It, it sort of it speaks to that lizard brain mm -hmm. of like I can't I can't control anything about my life, and therefore my fate is just kind of a big who knows. And mm -hmm. like, why do I even exist at that point? That's really interesting. So to to elaborate on that a little bit, so maybe right. you think like it, it in a way it's like Harry Call. He, we we all have this desire to engage in personal interactions with other people, where we share information with them that uh, could compromise us in various respects, because that's just yeah. this deep human need. We need to connect other people. And the way we connect other people is we, we sort of share our insecurities and whatever, our vulnerabilities and that kind of thing. The good of privacy then is being able to facilitate the kind of sharing with just who you- Selectively. Selectively yeah. who you want to share with, which then mm. allows you to form those kind of interpersonal relationships. Um, that's the good of privacy is it sort of is, is and it makes it a commodity too mm. for like that therefore that intimacy is valued because it's not your those details of you at yourself are not shared with just anybody oh that's interesting yeah yeah yeah. so then right. yeah it makes it more valuable mm. mm -hmm. that's well, what i meant yes, especially yeah. In, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right right and, and especially in you know capitalist democracies uh that's that's a you know culturally that's a that's highly highly valued uh the the right to be able to you know, self-determination to be able to make your own choices in life in theory, uh, to be able to sort of make your way through, you know, whatever decisions you're going to make in your life to have whatever, you know, riches or career or friends and family you want, uh, versus living in an, in a society that, you know, again, this is all sort of on paper, but that isn't free. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't have those choices and, and you don't have that level of self-determination, uh, or control over your, your own, uh, your own well-being. So one answer, which is I think what we're circling around, is that it it creates the possibility of interpersonal bonding because you know that's a finite resource, and so you're sharing it only with the people who you want to share it with. If it was every time you forge a personal bond, you were forming a bond with everyone, it wouldn't be a personal bond, and so it right. facilitates the control you have to be able to form bonds with the people who you want to form bonds with. Well, and, and bonds are formed on trust too. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like what if Harry Call like was forced to be friends with uh, Bernie Moran? You know, he'd be miserable. Yeah. And he, you know, and yeah. most, most people would if they were friends with him. Yeah, that, guy that guy sucks. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we choose the people in our lives for a reason because they either. They uh, reciprocate. You know, yeah, they reciprocate yep. or they bring things to us that we appreciate or they, you know, are, are good foils for us to be able to make better decisions for ourselves or whatever. They make us feel better about ourselves. I mean, there's a million different reasons why we have friends, mm -hmm. right? Or, or associates. So. There's a flip side to this. There's a flip side to that coin. Which is that the what the privacy is allowing us to do is allowing us to control the negative reactions people have towards us. And so this is the right, thing. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Too. Do you want to get into that? Elon? Well, no, because we were talking about this earlier yeah. today. So I was anticipating. But I think that's one. I think the things that I'm most private about or want to keep my privacy around are things that I am embarrassed about um, or afraid that I that people will judge me for or shame me for. Yeah. Um. So I think, you know, yeah. like I'm at, in many respects in my life, I am an open book. I think I'm not a particularly private person, but the things that I choose to be private about, I may be embarrassed about or worried that you, you know, you'll have just draw some poor um, you know, reflection or, or inference about me. Yeah. So, um, because we talked about this, Justin, because we were wondering if it makes a difference if a human being is, is collecting data on you versus a computer. Like if a, if a computer doesn't have any judgment mm. about those details, 
is it still does it still feel like a violation of privacy like knowing yeah. that google is recording it every time i like ask a weird medical question into you know the search bar at 3 a.m you know <laughs> um <is> that- <laughs> now everyone knows but yeah <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I well, told you I didn't want to have a podcast. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're getting ads for podcasts on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all, all of this is contextual, right? Like any perceived imperfections that we have are, they're held back because, again, we're, you know, you're afraid of somebody else perceiving them in, in the wrong light or without all the information that they would need to have in order to make an accurate judgment, right? And that's that's all based completely on context. And if you remove mm. the context, then like, what are any of us? That's and you know, yeah, that's true. I think that's right. In that, like, uh, but I think we also fear that even with the context, someone will just judge us either way. You know, like even if they fair. didn't have the full, even if they have the full context, they're just they're assholes out there, right? And you're just <laughs> like, you know what? I I just don't trust them, yeah. and and I don't want them to have that information about me because. They're going to judge me and I don't want to deal with that, uh, you know, that them having that that attitude towards me. I think it's an interesting idea. But anyway, we've we've hit on two different things. One is that it allows the creation of personal relationships, but it also allows the, you know, creation of barriers uh, between personal conflicts, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And not yeah. really, that's not the right word, but, you know, uh, personal judgment. Well, people curate their own sort of, uh, pr- uh, like, what they want to project to other people. Yeah. And that's perceived in a very, sp- that, and that's done because they somebody knows that a certain mannerism or a certain way of speaking or a certain decision that they make is going to be perceived a very specific way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and people, people that are really, really, really good at that are psychopaths. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, but I mean, the thing is, is that like, it's part of the human condition and it's part of like human interaction to do that on a daily basis, because you can't just allow random whatever to fall into your life because some, there's risk out there and there's people that are malicious and there's, you know, forces in, you know, especially in, well, in, in any kind of power structure yeah. uh, where people want to hold power over you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, related to this, and it's something that we're only going to be able to touch on briefly, um, is the, the the theme of religion in this movie, which which looms large over everything. But the oh, one yeah. of the things in both you and I, Robert, as lapsed Catholics, uh, <laughs> know better than others, is the the degree to which shame is an important and guilt are important elements mm. of Catholicism and, and, you know, affecting how you see the world. And um, I was thinking a little bit about how shame and guilt, which are these things we try to avoid by being private, are also bound up with religiosity. What's the connection there between the sort of Catholic outlook or even just the general religious outlook and things like increased degrees of shame or guilt about things that, that you might feel? Um, uh, about, you know, things, actions you might have taken. And one idea, just to connect back to the broader theme of this movie, is that if you are a Catholic, or really if you are any kind of believer in a personal deity, you believe there is an entity which sees everything and is never seen. It's in a way the ultimate hairy call, <laughs> right? <laughs> the guy who's an ultimately ultimate eavesdropper invades all of our privacy it's like Santa Claus writ large knows everything that we're doing, naughty or nice. And <laughs> we are caught. So we're constantly being watched in our worst moments. And so we feel guilty about that. And yet mm. this being is itself irreproachable because we can't, you know, access them yeah, at all. We can't it. touch them. We yeah. can't. So we know nothing about them. And that's an, that's an important part of a mm. lot of 
you know, um, of the um, various uh, theodicies is that, look, you know, God's mysterious. He's got a plan. You don't know what is going on there. It's beyond your understanding, mere mortal. Right. The nature of faith is a concept. Yeah, you have to have faith. And yeah. so there's this asymmetric relationship that mirrors exactly the asymmetric relationship of Harry Call to the to the couple, right? He has this power over them by infringing in their lives in this way where he knows yeah. about them, but they don't know about him. Yeah. They don't know anything yeah, about him. God. He is God too. in a way. Yeah. Amy too, yeah. you know, he tries to have that really. He can't it, by controlling not have it personal. Yeah, right. Well, and he he wants to know everything about her. He probably does tapping her phone. She says, I sometimes think that you, you're listening to me on the phone. I think yeah, he is. 100%. And he's looming outside yeah. of her, like outside of her door and stuff. Creeper. But then she says, do you have siblings? And he's like, I got to go. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, like, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, and like that, that's the relationship he he wants to try and have and call that love. And it doesn't work. No, it's, it's, it's not a relationship. No, not a, no it's yeah. exactly. Yeah. He, and he misses he misses the point like he doesn't understand that there you know a relationship is a, is a certain is it, it it exists in a box with certain defined uh attributes and he's not meeting any of those no yep no. yeah because he's yeah. never for exactly to Laura's point earlier he's not confiding anything personal in her so exactly. there's no there's no shared there's no sharing of any yeah so i i did not grow up catholic um, but I did dabble in evangelicalism um, because I went to this like very intense um, Bible, like basically Jesus camp as a kid. Right. And um, and I remember they like sat us down and they were like, all right, this water is your soul. And then they put food coloring and they would drop in food drops for every like a, like a drop for like every sin. Right. And oh, including wow. like. Not respecting your parents. Yeah, like swearing. Saying, swearing, right. Stuff that I'm like, oh my God, I did this twice already today. I just did it now. I use You just, ble- yeah, just, just blast. I just blast right now. Right? And I'm just like <laughs> sitting there. They're using the different colors, right? So there's blue mixing with red. It's just turning like this horrible, muddy purple color. And I'm like, that is my soul and I'm going to hell. And then, and then they took some bleach and they put the bleach in and the water went clear again. And they're like, that is like when you confess your sins to God, Um, (laughs) you know, but you have to confess all of them. And I'm like, how am I going to confess all of them? I don't remember all of them. I'm definitely going to hell. I came home and I was just like, mom, my water is so dirty and I'm freaking (laughs) out. (laughs) Yeah. But like, but like that, but there is that too. You didn't drink bleach, which is what's important. (laughs) Yeah. You you. didn't drink it. (laughs) (laughs) But, but like, it's interesting that, that like the, the piece of confession, right? Cause that is like the only, the only time Harry, you know, he has this need to confess, um, in his dreams, right? He wants to have that intimacy, but he also has this like religious compulsion to, to confess. It's the only way to have to absolution is to say the things out loud. You have to say it out loud. That's right. Yeah. It's a vocalization. Yeah. It's exactly. There's a kind of ritualistic element of that. And, and we were musing on this a little bit earlier. I I don't know if this is right, but it, it there is a feeling I have when as soon as you vocalize a thought that you've been kind of batting around in your mind, somehow it becomes more real, it becomes more something you become committed to. And I think it has something to do with the fact that once you vocalize, you are, you are committing publicly to other people, even if it's just yourself, because you're talking to yourself to sort of that being true. So you're committing to defend it to provide evidence in favor of it you're you're reifying it in a way that um that it wasn't before before you said it it was it was still your thought but it you didn't 
you didn't vocalize it. So some, somehow that privacy allows you to like, be like, well, I never had that thought or something. Mm-hmm. It allows you to deny exactly. it or something. I, I don't know. Well, and a lot of thoughts, once, once, the, once we, once, you know, when you, when, you, when you have a thought, a thought can be a number of things. It can be a number of thoughts muddled together. Mm-hmm. And once you actually vocalize it and, you know, you, you say it out loud, it becomes concrete. Yeah. It becomes something it's that, that you, it's, it's almost like you can't undo it. And it becomes that much more intense yep. as a result. And mm-hmm. so you have to either commit or say, oh, man, that, no, that really does not sound like it sounded in my head. I need to think about this some more and, and clarify. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that's interesting that there's this component of, the, 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 you know, confession being a ritualization of this, I don't know, this thing that we do kind of already. Yeah. Um, should we, I think, I want to make a make a nomination here of what, the what we can do to kind of wrap it up okay which is uh we we like to end on on a kind of you know just a fun sort of what do we what do we like kind of thing so one way to go is to think what's our favorite coppola film that's one kind of very easy easy one to go for another one is like you know favorite like psychological thriller or whatever or um paranoia thriller would be would be another one um so yeah, should we should we sort of end on that, or is there other things we yeah. wanted to? I mean, I don't know that I have a thriller, a, like a paranoid thriller. Let's off do the Coppola. Top of let's my do head. Coppola. Okay, so so th- let let's just talk Coppola for a second, and I I, right. I think you know he's an interesting director in that he makes four movies, which I think are unassuageably regarded as masterpieces or at least close to masterpieces we're talking godfather one the conversation godfather two apocalypse now those are sort of the four that and they're all in the 70s they're all in short you know right next to each other um he has a very you know interesting career after that he makes a lot of movies that i think people think are quite slight um he makes some comedies he makes uh some weird experimental films um but I think most, the kind of common consensus is he never really tops those four. I'm curious for you guys if you would say one of those four is your favorite Coppola or something outside of those four. And if so, why? I think, okay, guys, I don't really like the Godfather movies that much. I'm sorry. I'm a girl <laughs> and I'm not interested what? in mob movies. I'm sorry. I respect them, but I don't enjoy them. So, you mean you you don't identify with like an extremely oppressive patriarchy? <laughs> what? Uh, it's not. I'm sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> well put. Just gonna put that out there. So that's out. I love the conversation. No, I think the conversation is probably my favorite Coppola. But yes, I have to say, Bram Stoker's Dracula is dope. That movie is crazy. I love it. It's like, it's over the top and insane and a big, big swing. And like some stuff just doesn't work at all. Um, (laughs) But like the stuff that does work is incredible. And the mood of that movie. Oh my gosh. That was, I saw that movie. I saw that. That movie took me three views before I was like, this is a masterpiece. The first two times I didn't, it didn't click in for me and I, and it it wasn't working. And then the third time Mm. I was like, I would watch this movie every day now. I love it. It's fascinating. <laughs> so that's that's my vote for Coppola. What would you say, Robert? That's your vote? It's. I'll tell you. It, it's funny that you mentioned that because 
I felt that way about The Godfather when I first saw mm-hmm. it. I was like, what the hell is this like slow movie about a bunch of jerks? Like, I, I don't like these people. Like, <laughs> these people are bad. Yeah. Uh, and as I, as I watched the movie more, it, it the intrigue and the like, the, the specifics of you know the, the each everyone's arc, you know everyone's story, and and the the struggles that people like Michael and even his father had, and you know all, even though these people are terrible people, the struggles that they went through are very human mm-hmm. struggles, and they speak to like you know again like the sort of classic Greek tropes and you know all, all the things that uh, that really good filmmaking uh, utilizes as as common themes. However, uh, so I, I love the shit out of the Godfather mm-hmm. films, uh, and I love Apocalypse Now, but uh, I conversation is definitely, definitely my favorite, nice. like by far. Yeah, for so many reasons. I want to say one thing yeah. though, really quick. So everybody, it, there's kind of a, a commonly understood uh, notion that it, that era of filmmaking for Coppola is kind of his golden mm-hmm. age. Because a lot of the stuff that happens after, like in the 80s and 90s is, like you're saying, very different, mm-hmm. right? Like the subject matter is different. Uh, but even down to like, I'll take like Stanley Kubrick, for instance, he's, he's known for certain kinds of shots, for certain kinds of moods, certain kinds of subject matter. You know, he's, he's a very uh, distinct, ext- like extreme example of a distinct style in, in directorial, uh, uh, in directorial style. Coppola was that way with his first four films. Mm. After that, he like, he uses a lot of darkness as he, he, frames his subjects partially obscured by things from a distance. Uh, there's a lot of very distinct stylistic elements in, in how he shoots things. After Apocalypse Now, it all kind of just like goes out the window. And I've always wondered that because for me personally, like I, I from a craft standpoint, I can, I both enjoy his earlier films, but I also appreciate the fact that he was trying to branch out later on and try new things and like expand himself as an, as an artist. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, is that like any director of, of merit could have done half of his later filmography and it would have been fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, so, that's that's a really good point as a, a mark against the later filmography. Um, I don't know. Yeah. OK, so two votes for conversation. Um, OK, so right. I'm going to be the basic <laughs> and you're going to be the contrarian. I'm going to go for the Godfather. I do think <laughs> that the Godfather Fair is enough. a masterpiece. And it's it for me, the the. The the reason The Godfather wins is because of that first twenty minute sequence at the wedding. At the wedding, yeah, it's oh wow, it's, it really is. I don't think there are many scenes in movies that beat that sequence. It introduces every character. It introduces the like every theme that's about to go down in this movie, and it's so effortless. And I, I um. I could watch it any any day, anytime. And it's such a basic <laughs> and obvious thing to say, but it I have to admit it is true. I will say though, conversation very high for me. I will also say to your point, Laura, Dracula, very high for me. Movie. A very it's cool a good film. movie. It's incredible. It's an it's a really yeah. worth if if you haven't seen it recently, it's worth like rewatching. It's it's sort of an amazing overlooked movie. I think it got a lot of shit because of the Keanu Reeves stuff. Um, and the Winona Ryder <laughs> them feeling out of place, but it like I think Winona Ryder's fine. Keanu Reeves just like doesn't belong in the past. He yeah. just feels so modern. He's too modern. But there's yeah. a lot about that movie that is um, 
playing around with theatricality and and um and gothic imagery in a way that like is very very like that's it's the kind of thing where you have a very mature director making very deliberate decisions that a younger director would not have made because it's a it's mm. just a little too on the edge of cheesiness but he mm -hmm. goes for it and it just totally works i will say one more is i really Liked Peggy Sue Got Married. I actually think of the... It's a, it's a fun Yeah, movie. I think of the 80s Coppola's It's My Favorite. And... You love Nick Cage in it? I like Cage in it a lot. You love the voice. Nick Cage is in it. I do Let's love Cage. I, I also it's like that it's a kind of weird time travel movie. And like, I couldn't yeah. quite figure out the metaphysics of the time travel. It's very strange. It's basically like she has like an out-of-body time travel experience. And... But yeah. like... If she's inhabiting her earlier self's body, what's her earlier self doing? Is her earlier self just like <laughs> like somewhere else? Is she just like chilling not, out in the noumenal realm? That's like Zemeckis territory. It doesn't have to make sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I <laughs> know. But I, in my letterbox, <laughs> in my letterbox review, I, I like detail all you know what what could <laughs> I mean, possibly that's, that's be happening argument. in that movie. Yeah. But I kind of dig it. I, I what do you think is happening? Um, what do we think? I don't know. No, I we we don't need to go into it. <laughs> oh my god, we don't have Fair time. Enough. We don't have time. But uh, but it's a cool right. movie, and and so you know, Coppola, fun director. The conversation, amazing movie. I think we all agree. And um, Robert, thank you very much for sp oh, spending pleasure. so much time with us to talk about. Thank you. These movies. Uh, oh, thank thank both of you. I I really appreciate you inviting me on here and geeking the fuck out. For we could yeah. not have asked for a better expert nope. and tour guide to nope. this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you're welcome back anytime. Let me know yeah. if there are other things you want to talk about. Um, so we are at CalsPod on Twitter. We uh, You can find us on the web at calspod.wordpress.com. Um, if you enjoyed the episode and you've been enjoying uh, any of our episodes, uh, please go on Apple Podcasts and drop a rating and a review if you like. Uh, these things weirdly help as far as making the podcast seem like it's legitimate and not just to random people <laughs> in their basement uh, making a podcast that nobody's listening to. And, you know, our goal for 2021 is for this podcast to continue and to not be a random act of two people in their basement with um, crappy audio equipment recording weird takes on movies, but rather something that people might want to listen to. So um, yeah. you're here to that. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Thanks so much. And uh, thanks, Robert. Thank you. Thank Robert. you. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.